Welcome to the Simply Wild podcast. I am your host, Sadie Jane, and we are coming back to the wild within us with every episode. Man, today we have a special treat, a special gift, and something that I really don't take lightly. My beloved brother and friend, Hugh Vale, is here with us to speak his story of accountability, to speak his story and his medicine and how he has come back to the wild within him. Hugh, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> it's good to be here. I am so grateful. You know, I'm going to pull up your bio just so everyone knows who you are. But even before I get into the bio, I just have to share how we know each other. Hugh came into my life in a time where I was not allowing any other masculine energies in. I had just learned some really pivotal lessons, as you guys know if you've been listening to my story um, about the masculine. And um, I found Hugh, I'm not even really sure how, just some cowboy on the internet, and we started conversing, and he invited me to come, him and Jeff and I, to come swim horses with him. And immediately there's something special about your energy and our connection. And then not even maybe a week later, you reach out to me and said, Sadie, I need to show you something. I need you to come to St. George with me. And I was like, okay, I'm here for this. So that really began um, a lifelong friendship, family relationship. You became um, interwoven into our family. My, my kids love you. Um, Jeff and you are brothers and friends. But what transpired is you sent me to this ranch. We went to this ranch, to this random private ranch in the middle of nowhere, southern Utah. And you said, Sadie, we're supposed to host retreats here. Like we're supposed to do work here. And we do. We do that, that together. And Hugh and I um, get to weave our magic together through Simply Wild Medicina, where he actually gets to, or I get to enjoy and honor his medicine and magic through Mustang Medicine, which I'll share with you when I talk about his bio. But you also um, host many retreats there. And it's, it's a place you call home and a place where you get to share your medicine. And I will forever be grateful for that invitation, Hugh, forever. Um, Do you remember um, the first thing you said to me when I extended that invite out? No. You said, what's your human design? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we have this on DMs and Instagram. And I was sense. like, my what? Yeah. And you said, oh, yeah, I don't do anything with anybody until I know their human design. <laughs> yes. I don't know if that's still a hard and fast rule that you live by, but yeah, I downloaded the app. <laughs> I had no idea. And, you know, I plugged in the information and then I sent it over to you and you were like, okay, I know who you are. And I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. It made sense. You're an emotional projector. I'll never forget it. In fact, I think I can like see your design now. Yeah, it's important. It was so funny that you remember that. Yeah. Um, because I actually really like human design now. Yeah. I'm not as fluent in it, you know, as others are. But generally speaking, I'm like, that's, that's actually really accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And projectors, you know, first of all, being extended an invite. I was like, it's so interesting. And it was interesting going on a little bit of human design tangent. It was interesting how you wanted one-on-one -on -one time with me to um, officially like formally invite me. I invite you to this space. That's why I was like, wait, 
you're catching on something you don't even know exists. Yeah. Um, because we love our invitations. Mm-hmm. And it's so powerful to be recognized, especially as projectors in that way and, and as guides and teachers. And I had a feeling, I was like, I bet you're a projector because the way that you guide, the way that you teach, the way that your aura penetrates, the way that you're able to channel through what you do and even connections with your horses. Um, so we have a lot of projector power on <laughs> on the podcast today. Uh, I love that that was what, I still do that to this day. I'm like, mm-hmm. you want to work with me? Okay, what's your human design? <laughs> mm-hmm. It just is like such a beautiful physical representation of of even just the unconsciousness of what they're, they're putting out. Yeah. There's, there's so much interweaved, especially when you're looking at uh, the connection between each other. Okay. So powerful. Okay, so I'm going to go and, and um, I'm just going to read your bio just so you can know because then we're going to start weaving this really beautiful story about, about who you are. In 2015, Hugh began volunteering for an organization that rescues children from child sex trafficking and a year later became the director of social influence for Operation Underground Railroad, directly working and traveling with the CEO for nearly three years. In 2018, Hugh co-founded Mustang Medicine, an organization that hosts four-day rewilding immersives to awaken guests to a formula that empowers people to heal their own emotional wounds and traumas and fully embrace their wholeness. The four-day rewilding immersives experience utilizes ancient wisdom, ceremonies, and leading science with expert facilitators. Before I go even further, any further, I invite everybody who's listening You might not even know why I asked you to be on. And honestly, what's interesting about what's happening right now and the climate of the discussion that we're going to be talking about today is even before that, I, my intention to have you on the podcast was always there. I'm like, I have to have Hugh on. I want to talk about our story, how we found each other, the weaving of our workings together. And then I, you and I discussed, um, some things that we'll obviously talk more about lady later in the podcast. And it just felt right for both of us to have this conversation and to, for the first time ever talk about your story that's weaved really into your bio. Talk about your story of your experience with OUR that has now led you to your medicine today. So I invite any, anyone listening to come in with an open heart and also to come in with a dedication that you'll listen all the way through because this story is a story weaved with years, not even years, lifetimes of experiences to get us to where we are now to find our wholeness within us, which Hugh will so beautifully and eloquently speak on today. So with that, Hugh, I know you through Mustang medicine, through the medicine of teaching about surrender about forgiveness through one of our most greatest gifted creations, the horse. So why don't you talk about what that is? What is Mustang Medicine? And we'll go from there. Years prior to starting Mustang Medicine, I was tasked on a project and the... I think the aim or the target of the project that I was tasked on was, this is how it was defined to me. Because we were, this is going back into um, 
the OUR days. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at the issue of child trafficking or any modern day slavery, William Wilberforce is somebody I think everybody should know. I think they should read his biography written by Eric Metaxas. Uh, the biography is called Amazing Grace. One of his, Wilberforce's mentors was the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And he was a politician who uh, is credited with the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade mm -hmm. uh, over in Europe. I mean, decades later, um, Abraham Lincoln said that he wished everyone, every little schoolboy and every little schoolgirl would know the name and the, the history of William Wilberforce. And... I say that because this project that I was tasked with, um, along with a couple other individuals, was to figure out how do you change the hearts and the minds of the people. And I'll try to provide some context to that because when you're living in, an, in a culture that slavery exists, really hard things are happening to people. And interestingly enough, and I haven't looked at the, the recent data in years, but the data that I remember at last that I was reading it is um, about 50% of children that are trafficked cannot return home because they were trafficked from home. Hmm. That's 50%. So one in every two children. Um, that's that's a significant problem within the home and um and and there's driving forces behind that the other statistic that i found really interesting is over 90 percent of traffickers were trafficked hmm. and and this is i think when you sum it up is like hurt people hurt people mm -hmm. Right. And so trafficked children grow up and traffic children because that's the world and the culture mm -hmm. that they're they're raised in. Culture is very, very challenging to change because culture is not what we see. It's what we look through. Mm -hmm. um, Franklin Covey had a business partner and his business partner was named Hiram Smith. And Hiram Smith decades ago gave this incredible speech where he talked about he, he painted this metaphorical picture that each of us has this glass window right in front of our face and we don't even see that it's there it's like having a pair of glasses on and Hiram was teaching his business clients uh, and uh, and the world right because this was a public recording that he had done and he said on this window each of us has dozens and dozens, potentially hundreds of principles that are inscribed on this window. And you picked them up so long ago mm -hmm. that you don't even see them anymore. Mm -hmm. And the example that he gave was, let's say you have somebody who comes walking around the corner and this pit bull comes, he's, he's loose. And the pit bull looks ferocious. It's got that big square blocky head and somebody who has a belief on them 
that dogs are vicious or pit bulls are man killers, that person has this reaction in their body where they're going to run, they're going to jump over fences, they'll climb tall buildings, they'll do whatever they have to do to get away from this pit bull, right? And this pit bull could be Caesar Milan's personal pit bull. If you ever watched the like dog whisperer, he always walks around with <laughs> totally. his big pit bull. Who's like the nicest little. Right. And so, um, inside of our bodies in the way that we see the world is we're looking through the culture in which we've developed and which we've grown and the environment has inscribed on us and these beliefs that yes. we've picked up. And we oftentimes don't even realize these beliefs. In fact, Bruce Lipton uh, the author of The Biology of Belief, another fantastic book that I recommend everyone read, says that the data, the social science data, is that 95% of all of our behaviors are coming from subconscious beliefs, meaning we're not even aware that we believe these things. So the person walking around the corner and sees a pit bull and all of a sudden they panic and they're jumping over fences. It's not because necessarily that dog was worth that kind of reaction it's because they have a belief yes in them and so um these really hard things happen to people and we inscribe these beliefs and from there we're not even conscious or aware of these core beliefs that we have and some of them are very very positive and some of them are are um difficult. Yeah. I call them core wounded beliefs. Mm -hmm. And if you have core wounded beliefs, you also have core whole beliefs and great things come from our whole, our core whole beliefs. And, you know, we also run around and hurt people accidentally and not even realize what's really happening. I know I've done that um, because of core wounded beliefs. So trying to bring that back around, if I'm on a project and the aim of the project is to change the hearts and the minds of the people. The first question is, okay, well, what are we changing them to? And, uh, what we decided on, and, and actually I don't think I was a part of the decision looking back on it. It was more just, we got to change the hearts and the minds of the people. And I presented a question, which was, how do you change the hearts and the minds of the people? That, that feels like really broad stroke yeah. to solve them, to solve a problem that doesn't even feel very clear. Yeah. And the intention there is so pure, yes. but it's also so broad. It's so, so it's broad like, and it needs, it needs focus. Yeah. And, and so the target or the aim of it became change the hearts and the minds of the people by softening their hearts, mm. which implies that what we're changing the minds and the hearts of the people is from being hardened. So, so then the question is, is well, then what hardened your heart? Yeah. And, and I mean, there's a ton of things that, that are just hard for us. Well, it's such a blanket statement there too. It's like, right. where do you start? Right. Yeah. And so you're trying to change the hearts and the minds of the people by softening their hearts. Fast forward about three years later, and I end up starting Mustang Medicine, mm. which was a continuation of mm. that aim. Mm -hmm. And my thought was, I need to get this focused. And I used a really dear friend of mine, 
Derek McLaughlin, we went, we met each other in like seventh grade. His mother was like my surrogate mm. mother. She took me under her wing and, and just amazing. And Derek and I are still, we just hung out last night. Like love. Yeah. So, um, we sat down at a whiteboard and we outlined this. This is so interesting. This is coming up this morning. I found a picture uh, of the whiteboard of the whiteboard. No. And Wait, when was the Derek. whiteboard created? Oh gosh, this would have been like 2016. No way. Yeah. 2017, somewhere in the transition, maybe of those two years, Okay, somewhere in that time frame. I'd have to go look at it. But, um, I found that the, why I, this is crazy. I, I haven't looked at that picture of that whiteboard. You found a picture of it today? This morning. Of course you did. And sent it to him. Wow. This morning. Wow. Okay. So tell me what was on the whiteboard. So what was on the whiteboard was our first attempt to try to get clarity on if you're trying to change the hearts and the minds of the people by softening their yes. hearts. How do we take yes. that broad stroke and start yes. getting a, a more fine-tuned brush on that right. and, and really looking at it? So it's a list of some of the difficulties uh, that people would go through and could basically what are some of the high points that would harden the heart. And then we also had a list on there of people that we thought, I think there was a list of 15 people that we thought would be really good Sherpas. We came up with this metaphor. I have this terribly drawn mountain on the whiteboard of like people hiking up. The, yeah. Carriers of the word, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And, and so it's like, we're all on this journey to our summit Yes, and you need Sherpas and they're not going to hike for you, but they'll help you carry your gear and they'll help you understand what gear you need to take and how to use the mm -hmm, gear. Mm -hmm. I, I read a lot of books on, um, one of my favorite books is called high exposure by a guy named David Brashears. And, uh, he, he was on the Everest expedition in 1996, if I remember where it was like at the time it was the most deadly, there was all these hikers that had, had died because they got caught up in this storm. But he tells the whole journey of how you start at base camp, move up to advanced base camp, and then these different camps along the way. And then you make your final push to the summit yeah. and you have these Sherpas that like help set help up you. camp. And you know, these guys can carry like a hundred pounds on their back when yes. oxygen's 30% you know, thinned than what it is down here. And they're used to it. They like so know the climate. It. So these Sherpas, uh -huh. they are carrying, helping these people get to this Everest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is on the whiteboard. It's, yeah. it's this concept of, yeah. So then, then it's like, well, what makes this difficult to get to your own summit? And that was the first, like... So was this whiteboard created when you were um, first introduced to this concept with this company who we'll talk more about? Yeah. You and Derek were like, okay, let's brainstorm. How do mm -hmm. we actualize this? Yeah, because, um, you know, I, w I was on this project with with the founder and CEO of Operation Underground Railroad. And he had a theory and a hypothesis of how you change the hearts and the minds of the people by softening their hearts. 
I, I didn't understand the theory. Most of it had come from a book that he had written called The Covenant. And, um, you know, I thought he was just a, just a guy who was r rescuing kids. Like I thought that was his, his focus and his aim. And, and actually what I learned after spending a couple years with him is that I personally believe his genius is, is in, um, this whole hypothesis behind the, the covenant and anyone can go read the book. I think it's actually probably worth the read. Um, and this is Tim Ballard we're talking this about. Is Tim. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but however, where we did begin, as I got more and more educated on what he was thinking, I don't think that, um, I think his book was a ancillary support to changing the hearts and the minds of the, of the people, but I don't, I don't think it was a focused aim that could actually accomplish that. Right. Which is another reason why he created OUR. Yes. Yeah, I I th I think those two things I think it became I think he created. I mean, these are from the conversations I I had with him is that the story he told me was was that uh, one day he was listening to Glenn Beck on the radio and he had already known Glenn and if I recall correctly, he had actually been on Glenn's show. And the reason that he had been on Glenn's show was because of this book called The Covenant. Interesting. And so The Covenant, if people do their homework, they, this has been with, with Tim for a long time. Yeah. And, um, and Glenn had somehow gotten the book, read the book, contacted Tim, and said, I, I really love this. I, I love this concept, and I, I love this hypothesis, and I think it's really, really important that people know, and I'd like to have you on my show. And... And there begins this relationship between Glenn and Tim. And one day, uh, Tim's in traffic and he's listening to the Glenn Beck show. And Glenn starts talking about this horrible issue of human trafficking. And Glenn has no idea that Tim is working for Homeland Security in this capacity of trying to combat, you know, human trafficking. And so Tim reaches out to Glenn and says, Hey, I know I wrote the book and I've been on your show because of this book. However, um, the thing I do to pay my bills is I work for Homeland security in this area. And, um, and Tim had presented an idea. I think it was over a phone call. And, and he said, I actually think that there needs to be an organization, it could be a, a nonprofit organization or, or a for-profit organization, but there needs to be an organization that uh, exists between the trafficking and the government agencies, like the traffickers and the government agencies. And in between that, there could be uh, an organization which would be able to go do things that the government can't go do because right. there's laws and, and different things like that. And so that was, and Glenn was like, as far as I, the stories that I had heard and Glenn was like, yeah, cool. That sounds great. Okay. And Tim was like, I can get that organization. And Glenn was like, okay, then stand it up and then let's go. And from there, uh, 
Glenn started promoting it and they, you know, already had a, had a relationship behind it. So I think, I think actually that, I think OUR, um, is an unexpected success Hmm. that, that Tim has no idea how, how big and how powerful that message is going to resonate in the hearts of the people. Mm-hmm. And at that point, at that point for in sure. time. Yeah. And this is like 2012 ish. Yeah. I was going to ask, this is the beginning mm-hmm. and you, you got involved what like year? 2015. 15. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it had been going on and I had heard about it. Um, just kind of ancillary here and there. And, and actually what happened was one day I got a random message on LinkedIn from a guy who, his name is Ryan Welch. And this guy finds my, this is his story. He finds my LinkedIn page, my profile. Yeah. And he says, I need to invite that guy to come to a private screening of the documentary called The Abolitionist, which was the first documentary that was going to talk and promote this whole story. So did your LinkedIn have something on there that said, or was it just the energy? It was. It, he was just like, the way this is he the describes guy. it, it was just the energy. What did your LinkedIn say? Oh, I have no, something about software. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I haven't even been logged into that. Right. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, please don't ever make me log back no, into no. LinkedIn. And, wow. And so, um, yeah, uh, that was, that was kind of the beginning of okay. it. So I just, I had a buddy, well, I had a couple of buddies, Derek being one of them, uh, and a few others. And I got a couple of tickets. There's no reason that I should have, I mean, there's no logical reason right. that this email, this conversation should be happening or that I have any influence to like, there's nothing that implies that I have a lot of influence or anything. Literally this guy's like, you should come. And, and so I'm like, I'll go see this movie. My first initial thought was there's no way that, uh, child trafficking is a thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I was so naive. Mm -hmm. I mean, I look at it now and Mm -hmm. I look back and I'm like, that's a very naive thing. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's just because of the contrast of how much information that I understand today about, about that issue. But I was like, there's no way. And, um, but Jerry Mullen was on, was the producer of it. And Jerry Mullen was the co-producer with Steven Spielberg of Schindler's List. One of my favorite movies. Uh, Jerry Mullen also did Jurassic Park and he did uh, Little Rascals and he, he's like got this cool, I think mm-hmm. he was a part of E.T. Mm-hmm. So there's all these like cultural iconic movies mm-hmm. that, that we've been exposed to and Jerry Mullen's producing this documentary. Yeah. So I'm like, well, it's got to be good. So I go to the documentary and I watch it and I personally just had this spiritual moment is how I would say it like resonated just so deeply in my soul. And I was like, I will do anything to support this organization. And, and so I did, I just became a volunteer. I mean, I swept the floors. I, I think I took the trash out better than anyone else has ever (laughs) taken the trash out. You just believed it. I just believed it. This private screening, was it in like a small theater? Or was it like in someone's house? I'm trying to remember where I came into this. There was a couple small um, screenings that were happening around. And 
the one that I attended was they went down to the Larry H. Miller Theater. Okay. Um, in like Sandy. In Sandy. I was totally there. Yeah. What's crazy about this, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think it's important to know and why I feel so passionate about this is at that point in my career, I was very much like an influencer. So I was being invited to all these things mm -hmm. and I got invited to this and I felt the same way. I was like, how do I, maybe I can be a coach for the people that, um, the women that they rescue, like, how can I get involved in this? And I promoted OUR for many, many years. And so another reason why I feel so called to not just have you on for you, but this story mm -hmm. that for also pausing and sharing, you've never shared your story with OUR ever, mm -hmm. nowhere publicly, mm -hmm. nor have I actually ever heard the whole, the whole wholeness of the whole of the story. But now that everything's coming out, I have such a responsibility to share some truth of what's actually happening um, in the context that we are we are weaving throughout this whole experience that it's super important to me. So, so I understand. I'm like, I mean, what is more heroic than saving? Yeah, I children? think. I think. Um, well, one, uh, particularly in the climate that we're in right now, I have a lot of media outlets that are reaching out. Um, a lot of big YouTubers that are reaching out and saying, Hey, Hugh, come on the show. Hey, put your, put your story out here. We want your context to it. And the truth I've never, I mean, I think two of them I've like texted back somehow they got my number. Um, and I just, my response has been to the few that I've even responded to is I'm only interested in the healing process. I think there's a tremendous amount of pain that has come from everything that's, that's come out. Um, I am not, I'm just in a chapter in my life and I don't ever see me coming out of this chapter of judgment for punishment. Uh, I, f I think that when things are so painful and there's an extreme amount of unfairness, we naturally want justice and justice wants judgment and judgment needs punishment. Somebody has to be punished. And um, I have this non-dualistic, I have this non-dualistic belief system, which I believe non-dualism and Christ consciousness are actually one and the same. Maybe there's some people that know more nuances about it than I do that could, could make some separation between the two, but, but non-dualism for sure is founded in non-judgment. And that was one of the core messages of Jesus. And it, it, I went through a chapter, I guess, many years to really starting to try to get clarity around what was the actual message of Jesus compared to what is the message that, that I think organized religion being has. being profited on, yeah. Yeah, has, and some of it's in alignment and some of it's accurate mm -hmm. and then some of it's not in my opinion. And there's a fantastic documentary about that on prime. I believe it's a part of the great courses of America. Mm. It's like 60 bucks or 70 bucks and it's called how Jesus became God mm. or when Jesus became God. 
and it's from one of the leading theologians at one of the top universities. And he wrote a book about it. So you could watch the book or you can watch the documentary. And it is, it's like really well done. It, it, it's brilliant. And my point of bringing all that up in is the greatest sermon that Jesus gave was on the Sermon on the Mount. That That's generally what everyone agrees mm-hmm, with. And mm-hmm. I have read the Red Letter Bible, so that just extrapolates everyone else's voice out yeah. and only leaves Jesus's words in, and then you just read that. And um, that is worth reading. That's th- That you start seeing a lot of non-dualism that if you're familiar with it, you can you can see it really easily. And one of the final messages, or one of the 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 Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, and it it ends in seven. And where seven begins, seven verse one, it says, "Judge not, lest you be judged." Right, and and the judgments that you give to others will be the judgments that are met back to you. So a few years ago, a few, like six years ago, I started reading the New Testament in the original Kone Greek, which is not classical Greek. It's it's like common layman's mm-hmm. Greek is what it was written in, and they call it Kone Greek. And I spent like a couple thousand bucks buying a whole bunch of Greek commentaries and con- concords and everything else that goes along with it. I don't speak Greek at all, so it was a very la- laborious process. And I would wake up every single morning at 5.30 and for an hour or two, I would just go verse by verse and I would write it down. I would write the the Greek down, uh, the Greek like literal translation of it. Then I'd write the King James version of it. Then I would write um, uh, Martin Luther's German version of it because they say that's a really accurate translation from Greek to, to that classic German. I don't speak any of those languages and I would just go like spend an hour or two one verse at a time because it just took took that long and I started finding these like this hidden message this brilliant message in the New Testament in particularly the words of of Jesus so the point being is that when you get into the Sermon on the Mount and the scripture in in chapter 7 verse 1 it says, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. And and the word judgment is krinos, K-R-I-N-O-S. And what krinos implies is that I know what is wrong. Hmm. And when you get into non-dualism and you get into Sufism uh, with Rumi, mm-hmm. you know, he says, mm-hmm. hey, beyond that place of right and wrong mm-hmm. is this he calls it the field. There's this field and that's where I'm going to meet you. Right. And, and this is the place that I'm trying to have this conversation. Yeah. I'm trying to tell the story of the contentment and the pain Mm. that I, that I had in those chapters while standing in that field which is actually an easy thing to do when you're in the field. It's not an easy thing to comprehend when you're not in the field. So those who are listening and don't understand what Rumi is saying and have never been 
beyond that place of right and wrong, it's, I think my perspective of my experience and how I arrived at my accountable story is maybe incomprehensible. It, it might actually sound ridiculous. Until the person finds their own field. And then they, and then they and go, then they understand. oh, that's, that's what's being said. Because that's pure justice. Justice for yourself is finding the field. Yeah, so if you take the word krinos and you say let's let's take the the term out and replace it with the definition if that makes sense so i'm going to pull the the term judgment out of that verse and then put in the definition mm-hmm. do not make a determination as to what is wrong otherwise people will make a determination of your behaviors mm-hmm. being wrong that that's essentially what Jesus is saying in this non-dualistic term. And so the only way to make that happen, the only way for that to be true is that I have to see that the things that are torturing me are actually my teachers. And I think we all have those in our life. We have the the torturers. And this could be because I'm trying to reach out to my mother and she doesn't want to have conversations. This could be um, because I haven't seen my children in years, and uh, I wait for the day that they that they are. This could be because I was in a relationship that I felt abandoned or abused or betrayed, and I wish that there was a way to actually have experienced belonging and nurturing and loyalty, but I didn't. And those are really, really painful things. And it's very easy for me to say that was wrong. And the challenge of when I say what you did was wrong, when it comes from a place of painful unfairness, like extreme unfairness, then I want the world to be made right. And now I think I know what is what has been wrong, and therefore I it implies that I now know what is right. So now I know how to go get the to go get the right the rightness back into the world. Yeah. And the challenge is is that when I'm trying to make things right from the limited context and perspective that I have, I usually, especially when I'm in a place of pain, I usually go pick up the pick the pitchforks, right? And the buckets of tar and feather. And it's like, I'm going to make this situation right by making you feel the pain that I feel. Yes. And hurt people hurt people. And so we're actually just promulgating the same problem over and over, over and over and over. And I think we have to break out of that pattern. Yes. It's also a long way to say, (laughs) try to put that all into context. A long way to say that you're in the field, meaning you've allowed yourself to intricately weave everything that has happened to you in your life to where you are now, to Mustang medicine, Mm -hmm. to bringing people to their wholeness and we'll get back to how that all happened and why that all happened, but also honoring that everything had to happen exactly as it had and did to get you to this place of living your Dharma and your purpose. Mm -hmm. And the reason why you're even here speaking with me versus anyone else, which I feel so honored, but also, you know, having just a simple conversation of, 
this is my story. And instead of coming it from a victim place, which let's be really honest, there are a lot of hurt people right now dealing with this situation with OUR. Mm-hmm. And they're in this feeling of justice. They're in this feeling of bitterness. And you, Hugh, have been through this journey with OUR and Tim where you've allowed yourself to honor and understand exactly what it's been to now take you to sitting here right now telling the story of, I wouldn't take any of it back. Here's the part of it. Here's the stories. And that's, that is so important to you. Why? Tell me why that's so important to you to share the story in this way right now. I think it's important for a multitude of reasons. One of them is that I'm getting a lot of messages from, from people that, you know, it's on social media or it's text messages and they're looking for clarity. And I essentially am, I'm not really talking to them very much about it. It's like, yeah, there's more context to the story. There's, there's more to it than, than what you're thinking that there is. I think that, uh, I think this is a way to be able to, uh, change the hearts and the minds of the people by softening their hearts. Yeah. So the point of OUR and now here, and maybe it's not the softening of the people that we thought it was. Right. Yeah. It's the people that were involved. It's the people that got involved. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you were saying is like you, you, uh, you went to the, the screening when I was at the screening. I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing to think we were probably just like a few rows away from each other and had no idea of. Somebody who's really, really, uh, someone I've known for more than a decade and someone who is totally on Team Tim right now uh, called me up the other day and we had, we had a, we had a good conversation and he asked me where my position was in it. And I said, I said, I don't think it's as bad as some of the people who have the pitchforks out are making it to be. And I also don't think it's as good as what we all hoped it to be. Mm. You know, the whole movement, the whole, mm-hmm. the whole guy behind the mm-hmm. movement. And uh, that's okay. I, I, I mean, here's the point. We have to be taught by this experience rather than tortured by it. Yeah. Th- that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. Like, let's learn from it because this actually becomes a metaphor for how we, the pain that we have in our homes, the pain that we have in our friendships, the pain that we have at business, everything is relationship. And and I've not always been great at relationships. In fact, arguably, arguably, I've been horrible at relationships, particularly some of the ones that were most important to me. Hmm. And, and that's just because of core wounded beliefs that I have about myself, Mm Um, that I've carried around for decades, completely unknown to me. Um, Being a people pleaser, not being authentic. Um, Authenticity is the connection to self. And if I don't know myself, then how could I be authentic to myself? Yeah. I could only be authentic to what I'm feeling in the moment. Authenticity is found through situations like this. Absolutely. Through Through saying, oh, actually, wait. Mm-hmm. I don't want this attachment. I don't want this bond. I, I don't even want this victimhood. Mm-hmm. Where do I find my authenticity? And in authenticity, you find your integrity. Mm-hmm. But it's 
created through all these experiences. Yeah. And, you know, the amount of betrayal and uh, rejection and sadness and anger and rage that I felt uh, when Tim and I went our separate ways came from how he handled it and the things that he did. I mean, they were just blatant lies that, that he was spreading. It's a little bit of a confusing story. Yeah. Can we go back to your, your sweeping floors? So yeah. tell me from the sweeping of the floors to breaking separate, your separate ways. And you can take as much time as you need because I think it can weave the story of. So I go see, I go see the documentary, The Abolitionist. I walk away from The Abolitionist and I decide I was going through a really hard, hard season of my life at that, at that point. A couple years earlier, I had finalized a divorce and um, that divorce had a custody battle that was, you know, really, really um, high conflict. Um, we had businesses involved and it just was a, it was just a really, I was, I was very immature in how I saw the world and didn't know who I was. And it was a painful, painful chapter. And I was, I was coming out of that. I'd been out of that for a, about two years and I felt like, well, I had an uncle who actually sat me down. We were sitting on his front porch. And I think he saw the depression that I was in. Mm. Um, he probably saw it more. I think everyone around me saw it, but I didn't. Um, be, because I was in survival mode. Um, my world, I felt like, had been completely flipped upside down. Uh, and I think that's just common what happens in divorce. You go through that season. And to help me with it, my uncle says, I think you need to get outside of yourself. Mm. I think you're thinking about all of your problems and you have legitimate problems and that's okay. Who doesn't? And I think you need to just spend some time serving other people. So go find an organization mm. that you could give yourself to, to kind of dis I don't know if it's a distraction play. Here's what's interesting. What happens in the body when we, engage in service people have to understand if you want to make peace and you want to get to that field that we were talking about earlier you have to start understanding your body and your body is essentially a chemical soup right mm -hmm. here you, mm -hmm. you've got your body and then you have cortisol and adrenaline and dopamine and and uh, endorphins and when we act in service it activates dopamine oxytocin and serotonin dopamine feels good and it rewards the body oxytocin is a uh, community bonding yep. love hormone the love hormone mm -hmm. and then your serotonin is your contentment mm -hmm. and so life starts feeling like it's fulfilled or it's got some fulfillment to it and what better to feel better than helping save the children and so it feels like this all kind of With intersects this guy who uh -huh. has these crews and it looks yes. so beautiful yes and so i thought okay this is this is where i could like really sink my teeth right. into this and maybe get out of the season of my life and so therefore i also don't care if i'm like taking out the trash or yeah. doing whatever i i have my full-time 
uh, job that I was working at the time. And so any excess time, I just, and I was, I was a single dad who had children every other weekend. And so, you know, you're going like 12 days at a time when you essentially haven't seen your children. That's just a thing that single dads have to, if you have that bare minimum custody mm. and, um, you know, we couldn't figure out how to co-parent and, um, you know, I'm, I'm half to blame in that situation. It mm. takes two. And, and so there's just a lot of nights and I don't want to date. I don't mm. want to go get into another relationship. So it frees up many, many nights that I'm going to, I'm going to be able to just go volunteer. And so I did, I was probably putting 30 hours of volunteer time wow. a week just cause I had so much extra time. And, uh, you know, the event that you and I went to was a private screening and about, I don't remember the exact time, but it's in a couple of months is going to be the one night opening nationwide. The theory or, or the strategy for bringing awareness to this movement was they were going to rent out all of these theaters across yep. the United States. I think there was like 400 theaters. Mm -hmm. They were going to play it. I think it was May 16th. Um, they were going to play it this one night. And so they've got to build awareness yep. around the nation to say, come sit in the movie theater and watch, watch our movie. And they hadn't sold a ticket at the time and they're a few months out maybe 90 days or four months if if i remember right and uh anyways i'm volunteering and you know actually it might have been a whole year had gone by now that i think about the time frame so i volunteered for a year and wow. now this one night event is coming right and they're under the gun and and i was in I was in software. I was, I understood marketing, understood social media. I, I just liked those things and they needed a volunteer and operation underground railroad was working with the producers at the abolitionists, two completely separate entities. And they're trying to work together and they're not really working together. It's, they just can't really find solutions because, well, you got guys that are running a business with Operation Underground Railroad, and then you got guys that are like fantastic filmmakers, mm -hmm. but nobody really knows how to market and like sell mm -hmm. movie mm -hmm. theater tickets because that's not what they do. So I partnered up. I, I, I got asked, well, I kind of like forced myself into that and just by being super annoying and <laughs> just being like, let me help, let me help, yeah, let me yeah, help, yeah. let me help. And, and I think I can, I think I can solve this problem. And, um, so I went to uh, some of the guys over at Black Rifle Coffee who, you know, they had originally started here in Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and then one of my dear friends who um, ran a couple other organizations like Ready Man Media um, and some other products that, that he had. And he was very, very well connected. And I said, We've got six weeks to fill nationwide theaters. Let's do some videos, some short, cool videos. Let's get everyone to share it. So we created these share groups and we made these videos and it was like, hey, buy a ticket. And we ended up generating, I think, just over $900,000 in ticket sales in a couple of weeks. Yeah. 
I think I was one of those tickets. Well, and also your, it was probably your marketing tactics that I used <laughs> to then share with my followers. Uh-huh. Cause it just, I mean, OUR was known everywhere, especially in the Utah influencer world. Yeah. And that was one of the strategies that I had picked up from guys that were smarter than me. And I was like, that's brilliant. I understand how that works. Let's just apply that here. And, um, so we started getting all the influencers. I mean, I was on some of the first, I think I was on the first phone call with, uh, Lindsey Sterling. Hmm. Um, I was on the first phone call with Mike Tomlin at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, Ben Roethlisberger. I, I mean, it was like the fun days when it was yeah, really starting I have this to... huge mission. Help us. Uh-huh. And everyone's like, absolutely. Are you kidding? We're all against this. Let's do this. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the easiest thing to, right. to promote moving forward. And so... So it goes, that one night event goes better than they had expected. And it was for fundraising, yes? It wasn't for fundraising, okay? but it did generate fundraising. And the tickets were for fundraising, like the, the tickets went towards it. The tickets went towards uh, the abolitionist, which was an LLC. It's a for-profit entity to try to recoup the millions of dollars that had been put into making the documentary. Okay, okay, yes. And so the ticket sales go to that. And they're hoping to sell enough tickets to recoup about four and a half million dollars. For the creation of this for film. For the creation of this whole Which film. Which ultimately the film was for promotion of this. Of Operation Underground Railroad. Okay. And I wasn't in the meetings, but what's really interesting is in that film, The Abolitionist, the Operation Underground Railroad never shows up one time. On the back of the film... Operation Underground Railroad never shows up one time. So it's what ends up happening is it's trying to build awareness to human trafficking, to child sex trafficking, and not get pigeonholed into one organization. Mm. And the guys that were all behind that decided we'll have Tim be kind of the public face and the figure of this entire movement. And so the movie is really about the man tim solving this human trafficking which i personally have no issues with that like I, it's great somebody's got to be the the face of it and at the time he seemed like the perfect face for all of it and well, he was like the operations guy and he had left his job at government so that he could work on this mm-hmm. and yeah it was, it was it was a great story yeah right it, it was presented really really well and, um, and, and I don't have any issues with that. I never saw any issues with it behind the scenes. Working with Tim, uh, was always really challenging for the abolitionists. They, they ended up in a, in a massive lawsuit, completely dissolved, um, that whole opportunity. And I think it was largely ego was was involved in, from both sides uh i think ignorance from one side i think ignorance on the side of the abolitionist which those like so the abolitionist came first and then our our was our had been stood up glenn beck had been driving donations through his audience to it okay. and then that guy ryan welch mm-hmm. who had sent me that email mm-hmm. on linkedin he had put a couple million dollars and said, let's make a documentary about this. Okay. And so that's where the funding came from, the Welch family. And um, 
and they're a wonderful, wonderful family that had big, huge hearts. And so they said, the awareness behind this, you know, we hope that we'll recoup our money, but even if we don't, yeah, we what we think will happen is more children will get rescued, organizations will get really well funded, and um, I had heard reports that it had generated millions and millions of dollars in funding for Operation Underground Railroad, but it wasn't because they found Operation Underground Railroad. It's because they had found Tim because he's in the documentary and then his name becomes synonymous with, with Operation Under, yeah. Underground Railroad. Yeah. And that was just whatever strategy that they they all agreed on that and that's just how it went. And the the movement was all of a sudden like hockey stick, right? It just it, it just took off yeah. because of that. And because influencers like you and uh, celebrities like Lindsey Sterling and, and dozens and dozens of others. I mean, Tony Robbins is involved with it and, and for good reason. And it, we're going to rescue children. And it, it was really a beautiful time. Yeah. It was like years of just traveling around. And... So your job was to market with mm-hmm. OUR. And so once that work worked and you were incredibly successful in that, then you worked side by side with Tim for a handful of years handful of years. Yeah. Almost three years. And what had happened is after that one night event, I got a, I I got a text message. I actually ended up doing a Facebook live with Tim in his driveway. Mm. I'm sure if somebody could go back and scroll through it and I could be like, that's the one. And uh, so I drive over to his house that whole year of volunteering. I had never even seen him in the office. He was always busy flying around you know, doing, doing his thing. And, um, and so, uh, so I didn't have any exposure to him other than like, I would go to a gala and help set up chairs and he would speak at it. And, you know, I was just at the gala and, uh, doing anything to support any of the team, the team members and the actual employees there. And, uh, the one night event goes really, really well. And, uh, Tim reaches out and he calls the guy who was this the president of OUR at the time, and he's like, "Hey, that event went really well. Who marketed that?" And they were like, "Oh, it's this guy Hugh, and he's been volunteering. Like he's got his full time job, and he comes after hours, and he just does anything that we ask him for. And we think he's like actually a pretty decent guy." Mm-hmm. And Tim calls another one of the directors, and says, yeah, he's easy to work with. He's a great guy. I mean, he, you know, we don't have to pay him and he puts in a bunch of hours and mm-hmm. we'll do anything that we ask. Like who's not going to like a person like that. And me, I'm just trying to like climb out of the season of depression yeah. and serve. Yeah. And just serve. And, and so unexpectedly, um, I'm asked, Hey, because that went really well, will you log into our our social media accounts on Facebook and will you start doing more videos? So I said, yeah, and I'll just go, I'll just go interview him. So I'm in his driveway and we interview and we get, you know, I think in like an hour, we got like a hundred thousand people watching yeah. it. And Showing us face more, becoming yes. more of the face of OUR. And you understand how that works and how important that is. Yeah. It gives a persona. It gives a personality, a frequency and an energy to something that feels so big. Yes. It was, we were able to see Tim, just a normal guy who's wanting to change the world. Yes. And we felt it. Yes. And 
and there is a Tim um, that right now is. Uh, this is probably an unpopular opinion, but there is a, there is a Tim that 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 is genuine. Like that's that I think that's you could his, feel that. Yeah, it's, especially in those years. You know, I haven't chatted with him in years, and and I have no I have no desire to chat with him now. I I I personally feel like trust has been abandoned and lost in there, and I at this point it wouldn't matter to me what he said. I wouldn't trust it, but in those years. You know, I did trust it and there was an authenticity. And despite how I feel today, I still believe that authenticity is is there, that he really does want to make a positive impact and he really does want to rescue children. I, I do think that's I think that's authentic to his to his truth. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a very unpopular opinion right now. Yeah. Because he has some other things that make it really hard to believe in, in his behavior. It's gotten really muddy. And it's gotten very muddy. Yeah. And I think that there's a context to that that nobody understands, maybe not even him. Yeah. Um, because there's nothing in his life that's saying he's actually going to be as big as this is and 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 it takes off with very very little effort not to put all the, not to diminish the hard work that goes into running a movement like that and and uh to the directors and to the to the employees that are dealing with the day to day of one of the i mean a thing that you can do to ruin your business is grow too fast yeah and they're trying to deal they're like trying to hold on to the rocket ship right. that's taking off right and how do you spend the money and how do you do that right. we don't have processes in place to and and they i think they weathered that like really well yeah it would take very unique individuals who had had tremendous business experiences to maybe do a better job yeah and so i find that there's a lot of grace in the context of what right. they were dealing with and and how successful it it was happening and going back to to him to the context at the very beginning of our of our conversation of the opening of the hearts and softening of the, the hearts opening and softening of the hearts of the people do you believe that um that was Tim's intention initially or was it the child trafficking saving that or was it that like was that all synonymous together that came from uh the president of the Mormon Quorum of the Apostles um president ballard that that concept that concept came from from him so tim was doing this they get connected mm -hmm. and they got connected over the book he wrote okay a lot of people don't don't know that part interesting they have a connection prior to tim ever starting operation underground railroad because of the book okay so the book is like doing its own thing yeah but then Glenn starts talking on the on the radio one day and Tim's already got a connection because of his book and he's already been on a show because of his book and he's like, hey, my day job, I'm working for the government and I actually think that there's an opportunity for a, a private, in the private sector. It all connects uh -huh. of how, of this is one of the ways that we can yeah. open the hearts and soften the people. And so if you want the, if anyone's like really interested in the context of where, how does this all come? This, there's a lot of chatter about it. And to be honest, I haven't stayed up on it. I, I feel like it's, well, I already know the story. So yeah. it's like, yeah, whatever. But, um, y y you got to read the book to, 
to understand. understand. Well, it's so easy now that people are now it's popular and people are like, they want to point the figures at the church at this, (laughs) at this LDS church or at him or at the funding or whatever it is. Uh Um, but when we look at it from it, this is another piece of why it's so important and powerful that you're sharing your story now from a place of the field of accountability, because there, everyone has that, Mm -hmm. including Tim and including OUR and all that. We want to, I want to believe, and I think that it's okay to believe that it's based off of pure intentions. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was my honest opinion. It's very unpopular opinion right now. But my 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 truth behind that is, I think it was started and in a really pure place. No, no, it's that better than I think than you do. Yeah, and and so, um, so you're growing. Yeah, and the hard part about the accountable story, you know, to your to your point, here's how I define accountability, and this is a new definition for me. I think I adopted it about a year ago. Um, I I had some just some brilliant friends that that helped me understand this accountability is the ability to account for what happened without finding fault in anyone involved. Mm. It's an accounting, it's an Excel spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. It, there's it's the data. It's just the data. Yep. Just look at the stats. Yep. And, and so, so Brene Brown says blame has an inverse relationship yes. with accountability. So in other words, we can say the opposite of accountability is blaming. So, accountability has to include not blaming because the the two don't go together and i think i think for many decades i had a definition my working definition for most of my life was that accountability was to figure out who was at fault interesting and if you which ultimately puts someone at a victim but now you put somebody at victim yeah. and so then you get out of the field yes and so i i used Brene Brown's research and data to, to realize that accountability had to include no one being at fault because that's what blaming is. I'm finger pointing and I'm figuring out who's, who's wrong. And so, um, accountability therefore is, and this is, this is my definition of it. The world according to Hugh is me accounting for my role in the rupture of our relationship. Mm -hmm. Now, businesses, relationship, mm-hmm. friendships are relationships, partnerships and spouses, marriages are relationships being, and we have rupture. And I don't think you can have a relationship without rupture. Yep. I, I just, it's impossible. And so accountability, here's what makes accountability hard because accountability is, this is my role in the rupture of our relationship. Well, to be accountable you first have to be authentic, which Gabor Mate, the guy known as the People Whisperer, has fantastic books out there. Just mm-hmm. got interviewed on Joe Rogan like a year ago. I highly recommend everyone uh, dive into and just embody everything that he's talking about. Gabor says authenticity is the connection to self. And so if you think about how do I connect to myself if I don't know myself, right? We'd mentioned that a little bit earlier. So I need auth- I need to be authentic to truly take accountability for my role in the rupture of of our relationship. But if I don't really know myself, then I'm not really going to be able to know how to account for my role in it. 
The other thing that it takes is vulnerability. And the Greek word for vulnerability is a willingness to be wounded. So I'm going to come to you and I'm going to account for my role in the rupture of our relationship. And now I have to be vulnerable to be wounded, a willingness to be wounded because I might have done some dumb shit, right? I might have really made some mistakes. And so where's my safety in accountability? And I believe that the only way to be safe is that the relationship has to matter to both parties enough to make a promise that the vulnerabilities will not be weaponized. Which, how often does that happen? And that only in conscious relationships, only in conscious relationships and also only in the willingness of the other to see the other, which mm-hmm. in a lot of these situations, which is what I will talk more about this comfort, this relationship with you and Tim, you know, there's, it's one thing to say, I'm going to look at this experience and see where I have. And in that experience, I can find a lot about myself. Mm-hmm. I can literally find my authenticity. I can find who I am and, and also then continue to um, ripple that out into other experiences in my life. But if someone isn't willing to do that, dare I say that that's where, you know, the light, like you say, um, and I have no really attachment to him. I don't know him personally. I do believe that his intention was pure initially, of course, mm-hmm. but the lack of, of anyone being willing to, to look at accountability takes you in the trajectory on this path of losing that mm-hmm. in not just one relationship, but in all, in all of them, including business, which is, and, and here, here's some context to that again from my point of view, what Tim never had was a community. And I'm talking maybe just an inner circle, a couple of people who he could be fully vulnerable with. He would never be fully vulnerable with and, um, who could then hold him accountable. Hmm. And Hmm. so what does your ego do Mm -hmm. when, Mm -hmm. cause, cause, Look, there was a whole term. It was called the Tim Graveyard. Mm. And I heard him refer to it. And that was all of these people that had done business with him. I'm not the only one. Like, there's there's dozens of people that are in the quote-unquote Tim Graveyard. And where it happens is where you get into the graveyard is when you say, I don't know if I agree with your thought. Mm. I don't know if I, and you push back against something. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like out. Yeah. And so you, and, and you know, that's, he may argue with that. I care less. I fully stand in my truth in that. Like he does not keep people around. And that's when the spiral yep. just continued. Yep. And so if you think about it, and this is some of the context that I think provides grace to him. And to any of us who have experienced this is that what you end up with is you end up with yes men around you. Right. You end up with just the sycophants who only tell you what you want to hear because, you know, they want to participate in the project. They want to get paid and have a a good life because it is a good life. They want to believe in it with their blinders Mm -hmm. on. They they want to see it so bad. Rose-colored glasses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you just get a bunch of sycophants who are extremely talented, very intelligent, but will never push back against any of your ideas. And 
and then you happen to be think about a couple of things that are simultaneously happening. Um, your partner, you have an organization that is rescuing children and you become essentially the most popular face in that entire industry with one of the most popular organizations that's growing in that industry. And um, you now have multiple documentaries that are being made of you. You're interacting with celebrities. And prior to any of this, your experience is you're a government worker. Yeah. Like you were never supposed to have any of this yeah. happen. And I know that if it would have been me, my ego yeah. would have shot through the roof. And you know, your mind's a powerful thing. And if you believe that it's all for good, truly... And you can see that. I don't follow him. I haven't been following this very closely, just little bits here and there, but you can see he's still, he's still showing up and he believes. A hundred percent. He believes. He actually has, um, a superpower to be like fully believe whatever he thinks. Yeah. And, and Do you, would and, you argue that almost every, everybody, everybody, the mind we Belief? believe what we want to believe. Absolutely. Our own truths. Yeah. And also, you know, I have my own thoughts and opinions on this, this idea of narcissism, but even that, you know, being able to not see, to mm -hmm. not question, to gaslight everybody into believing, well, this is, which is arguably why he was able to convince these people particularly the women that were working as, you know, his wives in this experience mm -hmm. to believe that this was how they were supposed to do it mm -hmm. to rescue children through the guise of this, mm -hmm. which we'll get through in a little bit. We kind of jumped through there, but, but it can happen to anybody. Yeah. And that's the, that's the grace that's that the I grace. put out there. That's the grace. Is that, uh, and it's slow. He, he's not unique. In, mm. There's nothing that makes him this like incredible villain. Mm -hmm. I also think there's nothing that makes him this incredible rescuing hero. Mm -hmm. I just don't believe in that. I think in the field, the villain and the hero don't exist. I, I think you kind of just become one in all of it and therefore yeah. you just graduate from it. Yeah. I think a lot of people um, wanted, I think, well, I think a lot of people are looking for someone to come out and rescue them. And I think the thing that we, we really love about this caricature of somebody coming and being our rescuer is that then we're going to be delivered. Yeah. And it's like, nah, you can, you can learn from the lessons yourself. Yeah. And I think that's where I got a tremendous amount of appreciation for the pain that I experienced. I see that everything that uh, happened in the rupture of our relationship happened for my growth and happened for me. It's taken years. I think I'm still growing and learning from it. But it is something that is a pre I have tremendous appreciation over. And I use the word appreciation because I'm thinking of like real estate. It's like this little thing that had a little bit of value, but as time has gone on, it's appreciated. It's appreciating more and more and Absolutely. more. Absolutely. And and that's because I've pulled out of the victim mentality. Mm -hmm. And the my victim mentality that I had in the very beginning is really simple and I have a lot of evidence to justify being a victim if if we're interested in that which I no longer became interested in, but I had all of my evidence 
and the the victim story means I don't have to have a role in the rupture of our relationship. Yeah. And and that's the hard part. And when you look at the data in the social sciences and the behavior sciences and in the data of of uh, child trauma, the only people that cannot influence their own environment are children. So children can be victims. Absolutely. And beyond that, when you can make adult decisions and then you're no longer a victim because you were a co-creator in everything that had happened. And that was one of the most difficult things that I had realized was that I was in a situation as painful as it was and as much betrayal and anger and, and, um, violation of the agreement of our friendship and of our business relationship that I felt was crossed and damaged. I still had a role to play Mm. in how I was showing up Mm. and it's the grace that we have. It's, it's such a, an important key, not just grace to, I mean, of course there's a point when you get into the grace of the accountability or the, the grace to Tim, for example, or the person, whoever it is that's Mm -hmm. in this story. But, but as we, and, and ultimately this is just another story of us coming home to ourselves just because just with the focus of, you know, you and Tim and OUR, but we, as children, we are so susceptible to, um, conditioned. That's where we learn from ages zero to seven is when we are literally malleable. We don't have a prefrontal cortex. We learn everything. So then things happen in our life and all we ever know is to be a victim because that's all we were as children in a way. And then things shift and, and you continue in some cases to get knocked on your ass over and over until you realize, Oh wait, I have a choice. Mm -hmm. And then everything starts to open up and that's when the healing relief starts to, to continue. Of course that looks different with everyone. Yeah. The pattern repeats until I repair the ruptured relationship with myself. And do you believe that rupture between you and Tim is where you found your ruptured relationship with yourself? 100%. Yeah. And when I saw it from there, I saw it in my divorce. Yeah. I saw it in... The ripples. Yeah. It was like, oh, this is... Right. This is anywhere I've felt betrayed, anywhere I felt abandoned, those those uh, relationships, I think, were soul contracts that Absolutely. were trying to help me find me. Mm-hmm. I had a client, because um, I do one-on-one coaching, and I had a client just a couple of weeks ago, and he said, called me up, and he was, they had a rupture in their, in his partnership, you know, with his um uh, they're not married, but they've been together for a while. And he said, he was almost in tears. And he said, uh, I said, what is it that your soul really is yearning for? And he said, I just want to be with a partner who shows up as much as I show up. Mm. I really feel like I am just doing all this extra work and she's not. And I said, Okay, so what is that? Like, clearly it's torturing you. You you, you have a tremendous amount of pain for this. And uh, so what is this teaching you? And, you know, he's like, I don't know. That's why I call you and I'm sending you money to (laughs) to help me through this. And he said, this is my perspective. 
you might actually do more work and you might actually show up in better, more conscious ways than what she does, but it's probably barely because we attract the same level as what we are. Mm. It might show up a little bit differently here and there, but I said, what, uh, what she's teaching you is not how poorly she shows up for you, but how poorly you show up for you. Mm. Because you have this relationship with you and she's mirroring that back to you. Yes. She's allowed to make mistakes. She's allowed to forget to do the dishes or, or whatever. But our partners are not showing up. I'm not showing up better for her than she's showing up for me. You're showing up less for yourself. I'm showing up less for myself because what she's showing me is how little I show mm -hmm. up for myself. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those concepts that's mm. only grasped in the field. Yeah, the mirrors, the reflections, mm -hmm. the inward <laughs> understanding of why everything has been perfectly laid out for us mm -hmm. to get us to that space. Yeah, so I saw, I began to see that through the pain of the rupture of, of the relationship that existed between Tim and I. And so, so can you go into a little bit and, and whatever you're comfortable with, you were there with him for, uh, for three years, one-on-one -on -one with him. And then was it that he continued to have more yes men around him and that's what shifted? Was it... Uh, you know, a couple different experiences where you just like, oh, this is going in a direction I didn't feel comfortable with. And then what happened? Um, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think part of my accountable story to that is I have to be honest that I think I largely was a yes man. Mm. You wanted um, to believe in him. So I wanted bad. to believe in it so yeah. bad. And I believe that, uh, I was that because I didn't have enough education of about the industry, about what was going on. And I also was really only there to like do social media and take notes on in big important meetings so that we could know how to like tell the story of that. And, but one day he, he called me up and he said, um, I had started reading his books. This is really early on in our relationship. And he called me up and he said, um, we got along really, really well. Try to put some context to, to the, why this phone call came. We, we actually got along really well. He's a very charismatic guy. Like, it was fun to be with him. And it, it was like, it was fun when it was fun. But when it wasn't, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I, if that makes sense. And uh, he calls me up and he says, I've been working with the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles for the LDS Church for a long time. He's read my book, the one I'm reading at, at the time. Mm. And I'm like, okay. And he said, he's like a grandfather to me. Now, this is 2016. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, he's like a grandfather to me. And I said, are you guys even related? Because they have the same last name. Yeah. And he's like, weirdly enough, we're not, like, no, we're not related. And he said... He, he said that uh, President Ballard, you know, that's how he always referred to him, um, was very interested in figuring out how to actually solve the problem of child sex trafficking, 
which who's not, right? And he said, I have a meeting with him and I've been meeting with him for a couple of years prior already. And I'd like you to come to this meeting. Now, at this point, I'm just reading the book. I'm trying to get caught up on what he really wants to, his vision for how Tim is going to rescue the, the children. And, and, and I'm also doing a lot of social media, a lot of Facebook lives. I'm following him around. We're doing lives, like, I think on a weekly basis. And, and you know who President Ballard is. And I know who President okay. Ballard is. And I knew that he was also meeting with some higher ups and other organizations, other religions, businesses. I think everyone was trying to f solve this problem. And he says, I've got a meeting coming up, but this is a meeting that's consistently happening. And, and the reason that this meeting between him and President Ballard is happening is because they're trying to figure out um, how this book, the contents of this book ties to this personal desire that President Ballard has in his own personal life. Mm. And I said, okay, sounds good. So we go to the meeting and I find out what that personal desire is in President Ballard's life. And he says, I've been waking up, I've been having dreams and my heart is so sad. And these dreams are very, very heartbreaking. And he says, I see so much pain in the people in my dreams. And I wake up and I think, how do we heal the pain? And I'm like, that, I mean, that's like endearing, right? He's got mm -hmm. this old guys in his, I think at the time he was like in his late eighties and, mm -hmm. and he was very genuine to this, like misty teary eyes mm -hmm. and, and uh, he gave us some context, um, very generalized context, nothing in specific details, but that they were receiving a lot of phone calls at their church about different abuse cases and child molestation and stuff that's just happening in our culture and in our world more than any of us, more than it realize. should happen, mm -hmm. right? And, and what we realize. And so he's having dreams about this. And he says that his personal downloads, this is what I'll call them. He didn't refer to them as downloads, but his personal answers to his prayers is that we have to figure out how to change the hearts and the minds of the people. That's what he said. And so I'm in this meeting with him and Tim and myself, and it's like, how do we do that? So I asked the question, I said, so how do you change the heart? Like, tell me more. Like, how do you change the hearts and the minds of the people? And President Ballard sat for just a minute or two. And he's like, you know, Tim and I have talked a lot about this. And uh, and he said, uh, I think you change the hearts and the minds of the people by softening their hearts. And so then I said, well, how do you soften the heart? You know, this is like a long conversation. And I'm shortening it down. And I said, well, how do you soften the hearts? of the people and he kind of sat there for a second and he's like, that's what we got to figure out. And, and that was what he wanted to do. And, uh, he said, I believe that if we can figure out how to change the hearts and the minds of the people by softening their hearts, uh, no child will have to be rescued because when we're living in a, in a culture, in an environment like that, um, that children aren't trafficked. 
And so I felt like that was a really great articulation of a big vision mm-hmm. of like, okay, it's very broad stroke, but and at this point, let's go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, at this point, OUR was rescuing children. They were on. Mm-hmm. They were doing jumps and all mm-hmm. those things. Yeah, this is like, this is probably when you're like trying to figure out how do I help. Yeah, you know, everyone's yeah. trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Lindsay Sterling's trying to figure out how she can play the violin mm-hmm. and tutu around the stage for money. Operation. For yeah, yeah, everyone's trying to figure this out. So, did something shift in him after that, or was it slowly shifting? So, here's what's interesting, and here's some context that that. I think is worth providing from the Mormon narrative. Like how would you describe an apostle? If you, if you're in the, you're a Mormon. Yes. And who is an apostle? And then who's the president of the quorum of the 12 apostles? That's the prophets. Yeah. Sears revelators and leaders of the church. And, and then what do they do for their people? Yeah. they, um, gain inspiration. They clearly clear the path for everything. They guide, they teach, um, they lead. They communicate with Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they communicate uh, any kind of any kind of revelation, mm-hmm. any kind of nowadays, what is that revelation mm-hmm. they get? So at the time, Tim is a, uh, I mean, he, he believes all of that that you just said that he is that president Ballard Oh, is an apostle. Okay. An, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Is an apostle who's of communicating course. with Jesus. And now you've got senior leadership in the apostle who's calling you up. This is your, or this would be like the, this is like near the Pope calling up a Catholic, right? right. A fundamental believing Catholic. And the Pope calls you up and says, I can't figure this problem out, but I think you can figure this problem out. Like, what does your ego do if oh, you're absolutely. that person? Da, 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 da. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm putting on my cape. Yeah. I'm, I'm dedicating my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think anybody would do that. Yeah. You just have to f- figure out what your organization is. You might not do that if the Mormon church calls right. you up and says that. Right. And you might not do that if the Pope calls you up and says that. But gosh, if you believe in Donald Trump and he calls you up and says that, then... Anybody on a higher pedestal, anybody for the greater good, anyone connecting to God yes. in source. Yes. Yes. And so this, I think, is starting to steamroll where we f- find him today. Today. Is um, you just, he's got somebody that he holds so high on a pedestal and who's saying, I think you're the guy to figure this out. Yeah. And I'm sorry, like, you're naive and if you don't understand what the ego is going to do with information like that, when your hero tells you, you are the hero. Yes. Now, I don't think that, um, I think some context to president Ballard, I don't think that was his intention at all. Right. I think he was just genuinely thinking like, how do we solve this problem? Yeah. Especially from the guise of, uh, you know, any kind of religion, there is this concept of a little inflamed ego of, we have the truth. It is, mm-hmm. a, this is in any, in any religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like any of the leaders, I do believe that there's a good intention of, well, we want peace. Mm-hmm. We want, we want everyone to soften their hearts, of course. Mm-hmm. But when you're told, 
eye to eye, I would want to know that. Mm-hmm. I'd want to learn that. And from their perspective, again, this had been something they had been working on for a long time, but had never landed on how do you actually do this? And from their perspective, the best thing that they had at the time, and admittedly, it was like, is this the best thing we have at the time? Mm. So everything was willing to be edited. At least that's how it felt to me. Mm. Because it was like, let's just yeah. let's just solve this let's problem. Just, okay. We didn't care how we get there. Let's just solve it. And um, I do feel like that was very genuine and very authentic. Uh, I do. And and I got subpoenaed a couple of years ago by the FBI and the, the Davis County DA's office. And I was in there, I think, like right around three hours. And I was grilled on all the details and the text messages and everything. And and um, that subpoena still remains classified and hasn't, hasn't been released. Mm. But the same things I'm telling you is the same things I told them. I'm like, I, I don't, I never found that there was any, there was no manipulation for power it, it just not in the meetings that i was in yeah I, I saw genuine authentic uh let's solve the problem and change culture and soften the hearts and the minds of the people there could have been other meetings i highly doubt that there were and in fact i would dare say there there wasn't mm. but um what there definitely was is a deep belief in the book that tim had written mm. and that essentially was I got very, very little, um, I got very little instruction on how to, I was tasked with basically write the business plan for how we can change the hearts and the minds of the people. And simultaneously, I'm also going to go out and do the social media for Operation Underground Railroad and for Tim's personal brand, because somebody's got to understand this common thread that's running through of how we're actually going to rescue all of the children. So they don't even have to get rescued. We're going to change culture. We're not going to rescue children. We're going to change culture. And that is in result going to rescue all the kids. And then literally it was like, read the book, uh, the covenant, and then, uh, write the business plan. And can we meet in like three weeks? Mm. And I'm like, well, I've mostly got the book written. I can't say that I mostly have comprehension of the book. Hmm. I wish ChatGPT existed back then. <laughs> you mean you had the book re- re- read? You read. read the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had, I had the, I had the book read, and, um, and I was still trying to wrap my mind around how does this change the hearts and the minds of the people? And also, how does that connect? I mean, I know that that's how we all got here. That's how it all happened. But like, right. how does this save children? Yeah. And, my belief and meanwhile, is, all the money is still being funneled and all these people yeah. are believing that there's real change. Uh-huh. And and so at this time you have an organization. Now, if you just put on the lens of of the organization Operation Underground Railroad, they're receiving all of this money. It's gone way more popular than they ever expected it to go. It's It's what we all would hope for our business, but rarely, rarely ever happens. And it's happening for them. And none of them have ridden an opportunity like this before. None of them, I think, have really managed anything like this before. And you also have a bunch of uh, family members of Tim, friends of Tim, and uh, former, like, business people. Like, 
you know, you're going to do what you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to hire the people that you know. And yeah. And, uh, it was just happening really quickly. It was just all happening really quickly. And I think they were trying to figure out their internal processes. I mean, there's millions of dollars that are, that are pulling in. And, uh, there's a picture that I have. I mean, it's on my Instagram somewhere. I'm holding, Tim's doing an interview with Tommy Loren, who at the time I think was on Fox News. Mm. And they decided that they were going to, she was going to tell the story. She's the blonde haired. She used to do with, used to do a really popular news bit. And I, I can't remember what it, what it was, but she had, she was really popular at the time. It still is. And she's like, Hey, I want to interview Tim. So we pull up this laptop on this crappy couch on this crappy little, uh, coffee table. I think it was like plastic from Ikea <laughs> and we have a little lamp and somebody took a picture of me because I pull up, so I pull it up on my phone or on, on my laptop, and you can't see Tim's face, mm. but he's on this live interview. <laughs> and so I throw my phone down, and I run over, and I grab the lamp, and I stretch it out as far as the cord will reach, and somebody snapped a picture of it because I guess we thought it was, somebody thought it was funny. But it's me holding a this like a lamp with yeah. a lampshade on it trying to get enough light i mean it was just like it was hodgepodge just back then yeah. and and yeah. we were just trying to piece things together as yeah. quick as we can and it was fun but again i think there's a lot of grace for for those and i think it's hard to give grace for, uh for the unless you've been in something like that yeah and it just happened so fast it just happened so fast and then you have somebody who you believe um you can look up to more than anybody else telling you essentially, or at least you, you, you interpreted it as mm -hmm. you are chosen. Mm -hmm. You are a chosen person. Yeah. And I had uh, done the same thing. I think that Tim was doing to president Ballard. I had done to Tim. Mm. I put him up on a pedestal mm. and then he was saying, Hugh, you got to be the one to write the business plan. Right. So it's just kind of trickling downhill. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my gosh, I got to, yeah, I do. I'm have chosen a, too. I yeah, yeah, I do have an amazing purpose, and I I think that's true. I do think I have an amazing everyone. purpose. I think it's true for everyone, yes. not me. Yes, it's, it's all of us. Yes, and and uh, uh, you know, one of the great lessons, not to skip ahead, but w one of the great lessons that I learned from this was, I mean, I was really tore up over it, and uh, about eight nine months had passed since the you know, the dissolving of our relationship. And, uh, I decided that I was going to fast for a couple of days, like just stop eating. Right. I just, it's, it's a modality that I use to try to get clarity, mm -hmm. clean up my body mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, um, eat right. So I started eating right for a few days and then fasted for a few days. And the lesson, well, the intent or the motive of my fast was, what should I have learned? What's a critical lesson that I should have learned from that? Because I was kind of over being upset about it. Mm. So I was like, now I need to, I need to go find a lesson. It's like out stages of, it. of grief. Uh -huh. You're like, okay, I'm ready. Uh -huh. Yeah. And the lesson that came so clearly is that for me, the projects had become more important than the people involved. Mm. And I learned a really great lesson is that, 
we never accomplish the projects that we want to when we prioritize the projects over, over the, people. the people. Yeah. Wow. What a powerful lesson to learn in that experience. And a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And that was your accountability story. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it. Yeah. 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 So you know, tell I me think how it, you got I think there. another part was that uh, I, you know, I, I was, I had put him up on a pedestal and when I put you up on a, when I put him up on a pedestal or anyone on a pedestal, I have to put myself down. Yeah. You know, if I've got to put you up, then I have to put myself down. And if I put myself down, it's really hard for me to be authentic because now I'm at risk of not belonging, yeah. getting rejected. Yeah. But if we're all on equal equal grounds. Now, also my accountable story is that I didn't, I don't think I wanted to put myself. You didn't, weren't aware. Equal to, to him because I think I wanted a rescuer. I wanted the, the world to have a rescuer. And I also, um, I don't think I valued uh, my gifts I don't think I valued my me mm-hmm. to be equal mm-hmm. to something mm-hmm. like that. But yet here I am in the meetings. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like, what's wrong with my self-esteem? What's wrong with mm-hmm. my self-worth? What's wrong with, you know, I couldn't see what I couldn't see me mm-hmm. and where I actually was it just all felt like a dream it had yeah. come true and it yeah. was more Disney and, and Pixar and magical fairies right. than it was, uh, yeah, just get the work done. Well, and when you do that, even if it's unconscious from t- childhood trauma or whatever it is, I'll say this again and again, uh, accountability and integrity go hand in hand because if you allow yourself to go, below someone intentionally or not Mm -hmm. the lack of integrity is there Mm -hmm. this is why self love is so important and why i don't care how cringy it sounds coming back to your wholeness that is the key Mm -hmm. and that is what brings it together to where we are all chosen Mm -hmm. we are all prophetic in understanding our connection to god yeah another great key lesson that i learned out of this actually comes again from the sermon on the mount and it's in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in chapter 5, verse 48. In the King James Version, it says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven mm-hmm. is perfect. I think it's a horrible translation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason I think it's a horrible translation is not because the translators didn't get it right the first time. It's because language, I mean, that translation was done almost in the 1600s, and language drifts. Mm. And the term perfect doesn't mean whole in our culture at least not in the culture that I'm exposed to. Right. For me, when I hear, when I was reading that, um, what I heard was be flawless, Hugh, Mm -hmm. even as, as your father in heaven is flawless. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, that feels like I'm set up for failure in Greek, a decent translation for it. Uh, the word is teleos. So where we get the word perfect is comes from the, the Greek word teleos and uh what it essentially what it means is complete whole lacking no parts mm-hmm. and so a direct translation could be own your wholeness 
knowing that you are complete you are lacking complete. no parts, <laughs> even as your father in heaven is complete lacking no parts and knows his wholeness. Yeah. And now we're just trying to own our wholeness. Yeah. And now we get to embody the human experience with our flaws right. and realize simultaneously, and this is this is one of those rules or those principles that exist only in the field can you understand this and do you begin to see this, is that two things that are diametrically opposed are simultaneously true. And what I mean by that is that I get to have my flaws and I'm whole all at the same time. And, and to have flaws uh, and to be whole or to have flaws and be perfect, if you want to use that word, those two things seem diametrically opposed from each other, but they're simultaneously true. Higher consciousness, or what they call Christ consciousness, only exists, those things can only be understood when you're, when you're beyond that place of right and wrong yeah. out in the field. Yeah. Well, and this is why this is so important to talk about the intentions of since Tim is the topic of Tim and knowing that two things can be true at the same time. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I, th that's exactly right. So like he's as great. Yes. He's as great as we, as he's as great as I ever knew somebody to be. I mean, he, he, uh, married my second wife and I, I mean, like, this is how close we were. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and he was as terrible as yeah. I've ever known anybody to be. Yeah. I mean, he's both. And we're seeing that. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any judgment of that. I don't determine that to right. be wrong. What I, and this is what, uh, this is what I believe until you have read the works of Gabor Mate, mm -hmm. Bessel van der Kolk, Peter Levine, Brene Brown, you shouldn't weigh in on anybody's journey that journey, they have. Yeah. And I say those because those are the leading minds at the cutting edge of understanding emotional wounds and traumas as they pertain to our relationships. And so we have relationships and relationships have repair or they have rupture. And we wouldn't have had the relationship if we didn't like it and didn't want it. So if my or relationship didn't attract it and didn't attract it. And then my relationship that I've attracted now has a rupture and uh, the rupture only needs one thing and that's a repair. And I don't think that we understand the repair process, but when you study those experts, the repair process starts to come out. And you know what they say is that when we start to understand trauma and all of our attachments and all of our core wounded beliefs about ourselves, what we then begin to see is that there's no actual labeling of mental illness. Mm. So we talked about narcissism earlier mm -hmm. and it's like, yeah, the label of it. We oh my love gosh. to, we that's love why to I said label. it's really, I don't even love to use that word because it's people love to victimize uh -huh. themselves under the guise of their narcissist. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and when, yeah, here's the story of narciss, narcissists. This is the Greek guy that we get the word narcissism mm -hmm. from. He's a young boy who uh, his his parents get a divorce and he 
is a beautiful man. He's narciss narcissist. I can't think of his, how you actually pronounce his name, but he's a guy we'll call him. We'll call him Narcy. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Love it. Narcy goes out to the pond and he uh, sees himself in the reflection of the of the water, and he can't stop staring at it. And he won't leave the lakeside, he, like he won't leave the shore, and he and he just stays there all the time. And the people in the community are like, "Hey." send the beautiful women out there and like see if they'll go on dates with him and he won't leave he won't leave this rock that he's sitting on and he keeps looking into the reflection of of the mirror uh the the reflection of the water and he's a beautiful man and he gets consumed with his own with his own beauty well here's the rest of the story his parents got a divorce his father um, and, and this is what they think, right? There's some stories that, that say this. His father um, ends up in a relationship with another man, and they believe that that man uh, that entered his life may have molested Narcy. Mm. And so Narcy's got this deep wound inside of himself because because you can only have four type. This is... This is generally what the data says. There are four types of wounds that will wound the soul and remove and make you think that you are not whole. Mm. The first is abandonment. The second is abuse. The third is betrayal. And the fourth is rejection. Mm -hmm. And so here's what happens. If I was abused, that makes me abusable. Mm -hmm. And if I'm abusable and I was abused, then I'm worth abusing. Mm -hmm. If I was abandoned, then that makes me abandonable. And if I'm abandonable and I was abandoned, then I must be worth abandoning. And when this happens as a little child to us, because these things happen as our, you know, you mentioned our prefrontal cortex and our prefrontal cortex for men doesn't even fully develop until like late twenties, mm -hmm. early thirties. Mm -hmm. Women's a little earlier, little, little earlier yeah. obvious to see, but <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, reading those experts, you start to understand the science of what's happening in the prefrontal cortex. This is how I tell the story. And so this is unconsciousness becoming consciousness is that I have to have my prefrontal cortex to be able to write the story. And the story is, is that it happened to me and I'm a victim. And then what happened with me is that I decided that I wanted to learn from it instead of be tortured by it. And so I had to get curious because my friend Jeff Kirkham says that Curiosity is what converts the torturer into or transforms the torturer into the teacher. Mm -hmm. Curiosity is what transforms the torturer into the teacher. It's always questioning. Yes. And so, so if I'm, if, if I take on at this young age, an experience that I perceive happened to me, then I develop a core wounded belief about me. And now I need my whole world to prove this core subconscious belief to be true because beliefs really only want one thing, be true. Yeah. And so I'm going to set up all my relationships unbeknownst proof. to me. They want proof. To to then play this out. And so if I believe that I am, I mean, I have two core wounded beliefs. One is that love leaves 
And the second is that I'm worth leaving. Hmm. Until I started to step into the field and mm -hmm. started to... Carl Jung said that we must bring the subconscious to the conscious. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, life will happen and mm -hmm. we will just call it fate. Mm -hmm. And so when life feels like it's just happening and I'm a victim to it, what you have is subconscious beliefs running the patterns of your daily life and yep. you're not aware of the beliefs that you have about yourself. And they just keep manifesting and they over just keep... and over and over. Exactly, as you said. And, and so... These patterns began to cease happening in my life because I went through it and said, I want to understand why is this happening and what was my role in this, this situation, which is extremely scary. Like the, the, I think that we all want to understand, at least for me, I want to understand why are the patterns that are not serving my life not giving me the results that I want. Why do they keep repeating? And the fear that I have is not to go look at that, but that if I do look, I'll find that it's absolutely true and that there's no hope. Mm -hmm. and, and without hope, what do we have? Only despair. <laughs> I also think that there's a lot to do with comfort, the comfort in trauma bonding, the comfort in knowing that this is me, this is just who I am. This is the plate that I've been served. Mm -hmm. And, and if I look at that, then I don't have to actually step up to whether it's my potential or my role in all of it mm -hmm. as well. So did we wrap up Nessie? Where's Nessie? Let's finish that before we wrap yeah, up. Well, what you have is you have, um, you have this young man who has deep emotional wounds that yes. believes he is a band, like he believes that he is abusable. And if I believe that I'm abusable, well, I don't want to go hang out. I don't want to go on dates. I don't, cause it hurts. Yeah. So then I'm going to remove myself from actually having healthy conscious relationships. And the story goes that he ends up just falling in love with himself. Yeah. Because he doesn't have it. The question, why didn't he have a community? Where, where's the where's mm -hmm. the community at? Well, Carl Jung said that uh, you didn't get wounded alone and you won't heal alone. Yeah. And so I got wounded in my culture and in my community. And I will be healed in a culture and a community. It's probably not going to be the same community, right? You get right. to upgrade and get, get a better community. And so... Why he doesn't have a a community is because I think a community is established of, of three pillars. The first pillar is authenticity, the connection to self. The second is the vulnerability, which means to be a willingness to be wounded in that relationship and in my relationships. And I'm not going to have a relationship that I cannot trust. Yeah. And trust in a safe relationship is that my vulnerabilities will not be weaponized. And if my vulnerabilities will not be weaponized, then it's safe enough to be accountable 
and account for my role in the rupture. Right. There are relationships that I have still to this day that have ruptured that I have not been accountable to. Mm. It's not because I'm not, it's not because I don't understand what my role is. It's because I feel that if I go and account for my role, it will be weaponized because mm. I'm going to go and tell you these were my vulnerabilities and here's what I was dealing with. Here's, here's where I was inauthentic. Here's where I was struggling. Here's where, um, I was just out of integrity. Mm -hmm. Here's where I was playing a victim mm -hmm. and here's where I was playing small. Well, I'm not going to tell you that if you're going to weaponize if it's that. Not, yes. Yes. And the third, authenticity, accountability, vulnerability, accountability. accountability. And going back to Tim, you know, when you're not even able to see that within yourself, really it goes back to what you discussed or what you talked about, how when it's going so fast, how is there even time to breathe? You know, there's not one thing that we're, I'm so grateful for with the pandemic was that it forced us all to breathe It forced mm -hmm. us all to be like, what the hell have we gotten ourselves into? Mm -hmm. Whether that was seen or not, or whether just, you know, people decided to just continue to go through with that. Mm -hmm. And that can be really terrifying. And I think that, you know, to wrap up the narcissism situation, which is such a beautiful way to weave that story. We all have in a way that to protect ourselves. Narcissism is just the way to protect ourselves. Absolutely. And who, who wants to be betrayed by yet another community who mm -hmm. wants to be betrayed again and again. And so to find safety in ourselves mm -hmm. in the deepest parts of our knowing, trusting that they're real. And, and, and an another piece to this is just, remembering that our truth is always shifting, always moving, always question the, the term enlightenment is, is to, is literally defined as always questioning. But when you have millions and millions of people's dollars and you're, you're put, put on, on this on a pedestal, pedestal. <laughs> yes. And you're supposed to know the way mm -hmm. to soften the hearts and to, to save all the children. Yeah things happen. Yeah. What a beautiful thing to be, uh, tasked with that by such an influential person. You know, I don't think the, I don't think the Mormon church was tasking him with that. I don't think the Mormon church even, I don't even think they knew what was going on and what meetings w were happening. Not because it was hidden or anything like that. Just, there's a lot happening. Um, but what a beautiful thing to be tasked with trying to solve such a problem. What a terrifying, uh, destructible thing to think you're the only one that's going to figure it out and that you're the only one that's got the plan and, and, and you know that you don't have it. Yeah. Like he knows he doesn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine the pressure and. Oh, I saw the pressure in him. Yeah. And that's what shifted. Yeah, I think it I think it has to shift and at the same time anybody that uh is trying to hold you accountable to something bigger than than you uh you get rid of them. It becomes a very lonely lonely place. And so then now you literally have set yourself up to be the only one. And and is that what happened? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. You tried to help him find some accountability. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think I I don't think I was mature enough to be able to be the one to do that. I think that's why the relationship ended, you know, and and I'm not the one doing that any anymore. Yeah, those those 
projects like that where you're trying to change culture require a community of people that are under a Magna Carta, if you will, that keep you from drifting. And I think the Magna Carta is is uh, about the how to repair the rupture in the relationships. Mm. I mean, I, th- I think that if you really... Um, if you really break down, why are, why does slavery even exist? It's because relationships have ruptures Mm -hmm. and no repair. Mm -hmm. And that might feel like a really big leap, but I think there's a case to be made for that because everything is a relationship. And when you have one person in bondage to another person, that's, that's not a relationship. Well, and if, it could be argued that if both people were able to be accountable in that space, nobody would be putting anybody on a pe- on a pedestal. Yeah, that's right. Then we're sovereign. Right. Which is what it all comes back down to. Mm-hmm. And the intention, the purity of the intention is there. But as fast as the train was going with the funding, so too was having to critically think or this grandiose idea that there was this one person who was supposed to save or change or manipulate how we were dealing with life. Yeah. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to tell a story that I've never told. I mean, I've told this to like three people, maybe four. It's the dream that I had, but before I get into the dream, so that's your key word. If we get down some yeah. rabbit holes, yep. you'd be like, so trying to, to the dream, <laughs> trying to focus. Uh-huh. We're two hours in. We got this. This is beautiful. Keep going. Um, everything that is happening today, I had a dream and saw it. And it was in a very metaphorical way mm. that has not made sense to me until I have watched this last couple of months. And mm. I'm like, oh, that was that. That's that. Mm-hmm. That's that. Where, um, where we started, so we had been on this, we had been on the, the, I don't know how to say it, but that project of changing the hearts and the mm-hmm. minds of the people we had, I was a little over a year into that. And I started to realize that I had these inklings, tiny, tiny little inklings that, uh, this whole premise wasn't going to actually of the covenant in this book that he had written wasn't actually going to get us there. I didn't know why. I didn't know how it was going to get us there. I just started feeling like it's bigger than than this. And there was a couple other little things and you know, it's so crazy how the world how our external worlds just mirror everything of what's going on and what we need to look at on the inside. We had uh we had opened up a separate fund, completely separate to OUR, any other projects that were going on. It was a, a another 501c3. Neither of us owned it. And there was a guy, and he had a 501c3 out of Alpine, Utah. And he, the purpose of his 501c3 was to help organizations raise money and accomplish the you know, the aim of whatever they they were mm-hmm. going for. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, we need to open up 
another route to raise money and to be able to spend money to accomplish this aim of changing the hearts and the minds of the people by softening their hearts. So we parked under temporarily under this other guy's 501c3, this nonprofit, and we raised just under a half a million dollars, which would provide us a budget to figure out how to change culture by changing the hearts and the minds of the people. Okay. So I have a question that money that you were raised, was it raised under the guise of, uh, child sex trafficking? How did you find the money? Uh, when, when you're so connected with really well people, you you can can... be like, Hey, I have this other thing. Uh Okay. 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 Uh And we have another thing. And the other thing is this other thing is, is actually has the potential of changing culture and really solving this problem. And you already have this big, huge other business that's successful. Uh We're saving people. Okay. Yeah. So to pull in a half a million dollars and raising the funds, I think took us less than like four days. Hmm. Casual. And like three phone calls. Wow. And so just goes to show how big this train really was. mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, one day I get a phone call again, we had been working on this project for about a year and I get a phone call from that organization in Alpine that's holding our money of the almost 500,000 of the almost half million dollars that we had we were down to about $220,000. So over a course of a year, we had used almost a quarter million of it. Um, or in total, we had used about, you know, right around 240 or something like that. And uh, I get a phone call from the accountant and he says, um, hey, we've got a problem in your accounting and there's some deficiencies in your fund. Hmm. Now our fund has like I said, about 220,000, 218,000. I'd have to go look at documents to see exactly what was left in there. But that's, we had just done a PL every single month. So a few weeks earlier, I had received the PL report on what was still in there. And um, we were matching the expenditures to the impact. And so we were trying to be very methodical mm-hmm. about it. Because we wanted, we needed to raise millions of more dollars, but this is like our little test slough fund Mm -hmm. of a half million bucks that if we make mistakes, that's fine along the way. As long as by the time we're done with, with those funds, we've got a really good plan. Mm -hmm. And so we're about halfway through this and, um, nothing was really going that great. Um, nothing that I really was passionate about. And this is what was causing me to start thinking, I don't think this is ever going to, we were making videos about stories that were in his book, the covenant. Mm. And it started to feel like to me, and this is just to me, it started to feel like what we were really doing is creating a bunch of video and a bunch of messages that would promote the book and all the other things that could, all the other ancillary projects and products that he could promote selling this idea of his. Technically, then eventually run for office and then for president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that where we're going? Yeah. Okay. And, and this so whole, you're seeing this, whole, this. Oh yeah. Begin. And back then there was a there was an open in the Senate at at that time frame in like to the and he was chatting. We were chatting with people. I was just going to ask you, can you? Was he 
speaking about that to you plainly. Oh, he wanted to run back then. Yeah. Okay. We were, we had a campaign manager, you know, and, and great. Anybody totally. should run for the If you want to Senate. run for president. Yeah. Awesome. Go right. for it. Um, I mean, as far as I thought at the time, like probably be a good politician, probably would be a good politician. Maybe even today. I know. <laughs> If you look at politics, uh-huh. it might be a perfect it's, place for someone like that. It's a beautiful pool to go swim in for <laughs> some people. And um, I get the phone call and it says there's some deficiencies in your account. I said, well, a couple of weeks ago, the PNL statement said we had about 220. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew mm-hmm. the exact number at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I said, so what do you mean deficiencies? Like a deficiency is like a dollar is missing. And a deficiency is like all of it is missing. Yeah. So tell me a deficiency. Well, we've got lawyers and we've got some other things that are looking into it. And um, we'll get back to you as soon as we know. I said, well, you understand that when I get off the phone, the first thing I got to do is I got to call Tim. And you know, the first thing he's going to do is get off the phone with me and call you. Yeah. And uh, so you might as well just tell me what's going on. Because we're we're not going to delay any anything. It's just going to cause more problems. And he says, "No, seriously, I we're just let me get the accountants to that are working on this to like get me some numbers and we'll, we'll call you back." So we get off the phone. I call Tim. I leave him a voicemail. I don't remember where he was at the time, but leave him a voicemail. And I said, "Hey, we we got some deficiencies in our account. I don't know anything more than that. Call me back." So he calls me back like five minutes later, and he's like, "What's going on?" I gave him the story. This is what just happened. And I told him that this is exactly oh, no. what's going to happen. So I'm going to call you. Yeah. And you're going to get off the phone with me. Yeah. And, and he's like, I'm calling him right now. Oh, my gosh. And uh, hung up the phone. And he calls me back a few minutes later. And he's like, they didn't take my phone call. It just went straight to voicemail. And I said, yeah, I figured they would do that. They're like trying to figure out whatever's going on. Right. And I said, I'm driving over to their office right now. So I'm heading over to Alpine. And I get there and a few days goes by with the same story. There's some deficiencies. Well, we end up meeting with their lawyers and we brought in some lawyers and we had this whole sit down around this meeting of like, where did $220,000 go? And this organization uh, had a clause in their main operating agreement. And the main operating agreement said that if they could use any funds in any accounts that were underneath their umbrella of course. to keep their business purposes alive. And what had happened is they had a big donation that was supposed to come in. It was like $600,000, $700,000 that was supposed to come in from some deal that they were doing in commodities. And uh, so they spent... R220 funding really great organizations in the community. Right. Their big donation never came in. And therefore they, they have supply. no they have yeah. no way to be able to replenish the monies that they have spent unbeknownst to us. And so now they're basically like sorry if we can raise more money we will totally get that paid back to oh, you. Geez. However, uh at this time we don't see that happening. And um, yeah, we've supported some really great organizations with that. In the meantime. <laughs> yeah, in the meantime, we've like sent it to really great causes. And we were like, 
but we have our own cause that we had raised money from these donors. Yeah. And so now you're going to have to go back and tell these donors, donors yeah. what you just did. Yeah. And what happened is um, uh, Tim <laughs> went and told people that I had mismanaged the funds and that was the breaking of our relationship. No way. I had no access to any of the money. He had no access to any of the money. How we were spending that money originally was on his personal credit card and on my personal credit card. And we would have to justify to that organization in Alpine what we had spent the money on because they're responsible to the IRS. Oh, my god! And for sending Ew. us a reimbursement. And so all of a sudden, I have... I have no access to any of this. And so the question becomes, well, why would he do that? And here's where it gets really fun. When we had first raised that money, we had uh, sat in a meeting and uh, President Ballard had said, uh, I like this original business plan. I mean, this is going back like a year earlier. And he said, I like this original business plan. Um, I don't really fully understand it. And it was the origin. I had written this original business plan on how to change the hearts and the minds of the people. It's probably the crappiest business plan that has ever been written <laughs> ever. In you wrote history. it. And I wrote okay. it. <laughs> is it. Is it the same whiteboard situation? It kind of <laughs> no, started like that? No, but the whiteboard did stem from all of this. Okay, okay. <laughs> I can contextualize that whole yeah, whiteboard. the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and... Um, and so, uh, so uh, President Ballard had called Tim up one day. We had just raised the money. And he calls Tim up and he says, this is a true story. He says, Tim, I just have a feeling that you need to make sure that all that money that you guys have for this project is set in its own separate account not intermingled with mm. their main funds. He's like, I just have this feeling. Mm. I just have a feeling about it. So just make sure that happens. And so Tim called up that Alpine organization and I largely did the phone in the texting. Right. I still have text messages telling them yes. about Let's this. Let's move this uh -huh. over. And just have it. And we just told them straight up. Yeah. Like I just went in there and told that Alpine group. I said, look, we, we kind of are, we're trying to, I'm trying to keep everyone happy on this project. Yeah. And this is what he feels that president Ballard feels. So just open up a new account for us so that you guys cannot intermingle it. And they said, okay, that's fine. Have Tim meet us down. If we open up a new account, then we'll put you guys signers on the account mm. and you can also have the visible access to see, and then we will still be the accountants on it, but we will separate it from our main funds. Right. And I said, great. And Tim said, no, I don't want that to happen. What I want you to do is I want you to take that full amount, like just under $500,000. I want you to take that and I want you to transfer that over to my personal LLC at Chase Bank. Mm. And the did you know that that happened? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and at the um, Alpine organization, they said, "Tim, we're not doing that. We cannot release 
a half a million dollars over to your LLC because once we release it, you get to do whatever you want right. with it. And we are still responsible at the IRS of what you did with it. Mm. So you would have to send a whole expenditure plan accounting for how you're going to do it so that if you miss you, if you break that agreement and how you're going to spend that money, well, then we can just tell the IRS, well, they promised to spend it in this way according to this plan. Well, we didn't have a plan looking that far out. And so they said, well, we're not going to send the money over to your LLC. And so um, they said, but what we will do is we'll keep the money in the Wells Fargo account. We'll open it up and you can come down and be a signer on it. Okay. And you can watch and look at the funds and it'll only be sitting in your own account and we'll never move money out of it or anything and we'll create that agreement. And only you, Hugh and Tim can pull. And only Hugh and Tim can pull. I didn't want to be a signer on that account. Yeah. Just just something inside of me was like, don't touch the money. Don't get rid of the money. Yeah. This stuff is so sensitive with the IRS and everything else. Anyways, I'm just like, look, I'm the, I'm the media guy. I'm I'm the project manager guy. I don't don't want to do any of the financing. I'll, I'll turn my credit card in and you can reimburse me. And then I know that we really spent yes. it on the right things. Yes. And if you don't feel like there's something that we spent right, then don't reimbursement and I'll eat it myself. Right. You don't want to have these funds. You don't want to have the availability of these funds. You mm-hmm. don't want to have the responsibility. But here we, here we are. For mm-hmm. some reason, he put you, both of you on this. He didn't even put us both on it. He said, meet me down at, at Wells Fargo. Okay. And uh, I'll, put, I'll put whoever you guys want to be on it. Okay. And he said, no, just make it Tim. Okay. And Tim said, that's not, I don't want to do that. I don't know why he said, I don't want to do that. Yeah. He just said, just send the money over to my for-profit. And they said, we can't. Yeah. You don't have an expenditure plan. And we're not going to get, we're Mm -hmm. not going to be held Mm -hmm. liable for however Mm -hmm. you want to spend it once it leaves our account. Yes. And so he just never showed up to the appointment at at Wells Fargo. So the money remained. So it stayed there. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. It stays in the main account mingled. A year later... It gets spent. So do we know where it went? I heard that one of the projects went to the Deborah Bonner choir. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like one of the, one of the chunks of the fund, like 20 grand or something like that went. Oh, so not, not the $220,000. Oh, no, no, no. They spent it like amongst all kinds oh, of really oh, good organizations that needed extra support and funding that helped the community out and do really great things. But Tim didn't want to be seen as somebody who didn't follow the rules. So he just put it on you. Uh And that was the first, was that the first time that that happened? Or was that the first one that was big enough that was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't not be this guy's punching bag. First, first and only time it happened. Okay. And then you were like, I'm out. First and last time it happened. Oh, I mean, so we're in the meeting with the lawyers and they're saying, this is where we spent the money. And we're like, why did you do that? And they were like, it was the money was mingled. And then I was like, oh my gosh, the money never got moved over to its own account. Yeah. And the flashback comes back from like a year later and like, that old guy, President Ballard, I guess he got a real download. Yeah. Like, that was like a legit thing. <laughs> that was a lit revelation. Yeah. I was like, oh, this guy's not too far off. Wow. Like, he's pretty smart. Interesting. And so that was, that was an interesting uh, dynamic to that. And, um, what also was really interesting is, uh, I mean, it was like four or five days later and Tim and I were done. Wow. And he didn't take my phone calls. He didn't do it. We had a meeting. 
coming up to go report on this whole project uh, it, at, with President Ballard and let him know how it was going. I uh, was kicked off the invite for the meeting and didn't really understand what was going on. I drove over to his house and um, he, he just was like, all of a sudden there was a bunch of different things like just goofy things. I can't even remember what, what they were. There was like three or four things where it was, well, you made this video for, um, there was a video for Sean Hannity and he's like, and you didn't put, uh, you didn't put my name in that video. Hmm. So there was a guy who, who was, was doing a painting for it. It was this project that was going on to try to potentially raise some money for Operation Underground Railroad. And it was, this painting was being done by John McNaughton and John McNaughton knows Sean Hannity and Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck are kind of competitors. And so maybe Sean Hannity might not support Operation mm. Underground Railroad if he knows that Glenn's already been pushing mm. this organization for years. So John, the artist says, um, the artist says, well, why don't, uh, why don't we send a video over that I'm doing this commissioned piece to raise organization for rescuing children, but we're not going to just don't mention Let's not mention anything of what organization it is, mm -hmm. but just say, I'm doing a piece and I would love to see if you would promote it on your Sean Hannity show. It's like a two minute long video. The only person that's going to see this video is Sean Hannity. Mm -hmm. So we make the video. I get it into a text format, send it over to, to John McNaughton. John texts it over to, to Sean. Nothing really came of it. I don't know why nothing came of it. And Tim was like, you didn't even put my name in it. You didn't put OUR's name in it. And basically like, I think you're drifting. Mm. And I'm like, Drif drifting from what? Yeah. To what? To what? To where? Yeah. To uh, so that kind of was the beginning of... I started Can't. getting phone calls. Um, so what happened is Tim uh, got, he got a, another guy that was working at, kind of doing some of his secretary type work. And um, that guy contacted some of my family members. Mm. This is like a couple of days later. And it just uh, all unraveled so fast. Oh, it was overnight. Oh my gosh. Which who else's story unraveled overnight? Yeah. And so this guy called like his, one of his secretary guys calls up my family member and says, Hey, we're really worried about Hugh. And my family members are like, what do you mean? What's going on? And they're like, well, we think he might be, uh, we think he might be suicidal. And family members are like, what are you talking about? What's happened? Well, he's, he got in trouble and he had to get let go. He misused a lot of money and um, we're just concerned and worried about him and we don't know what's happening. We're trying to get to the bottom of it, but we just wanted to let you know. Oh my gosh. Just for the record, the person that we were talking about that how, like this is exploded overnight is Tim. Uh -huh. Yes. But the corruption Oh, just the, just the just the lies, just the 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 deception behind so, it. So, it, explain to me: Did you go to him and you said, "How dare you? Why would you do this?" Or did it just start evolving so fast you couldn't even say that? He called everyone that I had contacts with. Everyone. So he was just always trying to keep 
one foot in the story was before like, you. Hugh is compromised. Hugh cannot be trusted. <sighs> Don't take his phone calls. I'm I'm calling other directors. I'm calling. I mean, the Navy SEAL Dave Lopez was running the operations program. We had become really close friends. We're still really close friends today. He called me a couple years later after he got into a sideways situation. The same thing happened to him a couple years later. He called me up. He said, I apologize. Uh, the information All because he was too proud of saying that he didn't move the funds. Just didn't move the funds. And we could have gone in and said... Sorry. The funds were still used for good purposes. Yeah. I mean, look, you're talking about you're talking about something that's going to require tens of millions of dollars to change culture. And we're in like a little test fund of a couple hundred thousand, you know, 400, 500,000. Just a simple dollars. humility, like I'm sorry, I f- I f- up a little bit here. Uh-huh. It'll never happen. Instead, I'm going to destroy my right-hand man's life. Yeah, and to, I to and hide I, it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And people are going to believe me. And they did. I mean, I I lost like a couple hundred followers overnight on Instagram and Facebook and everything. Because, you know, I was was never promoting myself. I was never putting myself out there. But we were always, we were always together. So people were just slowly starting to follow me. And they were big supporters of anything that the work was doing. And then all of a sudden, it was just like, it was like nobody would touch me with a 10-foot pole. So I took a gig. Well, I tried to, I did end up getting the gig, but. So now I got to go like figure out, okay, well, what am I going to do? And, um, a buddy of mine had a really cool project going on. And so he said, well, here, I'll, I'll give you a little gig to do some media for us and, and all that. So he got an email from the secretary that said, Hey, we went and met with president Ballard and president Ballard says, don't touch this guy with a 10 foot pole. Oh my gosh. I mean, destroyed. President Ballard still has no idea today that like I had nothing to do with, with it. I didn't try to, I, I just, it devastated me. And the, the, the challenge is, is that especially back then he was so powerful. He, he, he just call up anybody. Mustang medicine had a deal with the AG's office to where I was going to do a, a presentation, you know, like what we do with your organ, like at your retreats. And it was just going to be a company wellness kind of half day event. And, um, the, uh, AG's office called me up like a week before the, they were supposed to attend the event. So they're like reviewing their week schedule. And the secretary to the AG said, um, yeah, this is this organization called Mustang Medicine. And it's going to be a really great thing. We want to bring the whole team down there. We think that there might be some uh, good use case for Mustang Medicine to be out in the community. And, you know, suicide prevention could maybe benefit from this. And it's they had some ideas. And and it was really early and initial. And so I was kind of taking anything that, mm-hmm. that might work. Mm-hmm. And, and then, uh, the AG was like, wait, that's the Hugh Vale that like, that like, and he had some version of the story about me and the money and everything. And he's like, yeah, we, we can't do that. We can't touch that guy with a 10 foot pole. He had missed, he had misused the money and everything. And he's, he's not trustworthy. So the AG's office canceled everything and all these other opportunities, like, you know, they're, they're all attached to each other because you're trying to stack and build and, of course. and let one thing lead to another. And, and, um, yeah, that just followed me around for how many years? 
Oh, I mean, for probably two years. And that was when? What year was that? That was 2017. Mm. 2017, 2018. You never once said a thing. No, I didn't say anything. Until now. Until now. Yeah. Until you're on the other side and you're in the field. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and where I'm in the field is like, it's like that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. It was the worst thing. I'm so sorry. Especially knowing you and your heart and how much you meant to him and how much you desire. I mean, your whole life, all I know, the Huvel I know is that you've dedicated your whole life to soften and open the hearts of men. Yeah, for sure. And I think you do that now by helping people return to their wholeness. Yeah. The Greek word for healing means to return to wholeness. Mm. And uh, what takes us from our wholeness is when these types of experiences happen. We feel abandoned. We feel abused. We feel betrayed. We feel rejected. And then we pick up a story in our prefrontal cortex and says, well, then I must be worth abandoning or abusing or rejecting. And that fractures me from me because I accept this story. And then the healing process is the returning and say, well, I have a role to play in all of that, but I've actually been whole and I've been complete this entire time. Mm -hmm. And that's a process. That's that's like really, really challenging to years and years, years, you know, and and I'm still not because of that situation, but I have other things that I'm still trying to integrate into my life. Right. It's such an initiation Mm -hmm. to say, this is the path. The accountability path is such an initiation to really seeing if you're going to really see your wholeness, all the shadows will be exposed. And you you know, what's funny (laughs) is that, uh, I had really been think like really in my personal life at that time in my life is I didn't have the language around it, but I was essentially saying, I want to like, look at all my shadows and I want to see what's all keeping me, what's keeping me from me. I didn't have that clean a language around it, Mm -hmm. but in my own personal life, that was the growth that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And I believed that if we could, if I could go down that way, that could potentially change the hearts and the minds of the people by softening their hearts. If you could look at your shadows and be okay with all of it. And again, I didn't have that kind of awareness in that language, but in my soul, there was something that was like, let's look at everything. And then this whole situation shows up and it showed me all my shadows. And how you were going to handle, move through, experience, heal from something that you couldn't control. Mm Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a dream. <laughs> so I'm devastated when I find out after I've, after it really comes out that I'm going to be the fall guy for this. Yeah. And I walked into my house and, uh, it, like it's one of those moments where you really, you do end up on your knees I wasn't praying or anything. I was just on my knees because it was too heavy to stand. And I think I think the hardest part about it is that it's like this thing that you believe you have this relationship that's all based in fact. 
Mm. We have all this evidence of how well we work together and mm-hmm. in, in this friendship and, oh, we're, we're like, we're vacationing and we're, we're, we're sharing all of our embarrassing stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're like building genuine connection and friendship. And it's, it feels like the world is, is predictable and, and, and factual. And all of a sudden it feels like it's a, been a complete fantasy and it just like wrecks your reality. And that's a hard moment. I felt like I had been uh, <laughs> abandoned, abused, cheated on. Like, all, uh, yeah, 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 all, yeah. The, all the stuff. And I'm sitting there and I, it's late at night and I've just been crying. And, you know, it was the betrayal of the friendship. I felt like I had given over so much of me. And I think we do that in inappropriate ways when we put someone on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And so I had, I had maybe given over too much of mm-hmm. me and, and then it had just been trashed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, somehow I made it into bed and I fell asleep and I ended up having a dream and I typically don't dream, but when I do dream, it's prophetic. It, yeah, it yeah. feels very like okay, that was a thing. Right. And I don't usually have interpretation for it, but I'll write it down. So that night I, I ended up having a dream and I, and I woke up. I didn't, it didn't make me feel any better. I didn't have any clarity around it, but this was the dream. The dream was as I was sailing on a ship and I was out to, to sea and I had a, I had, and we were on these like old, I was on an old boat it was like a a sailing boat, like made of wood and like mm-hmm. from the 1600s or the 1700s. And as I was sailing, I had a destination to go to and it felt like it was very important for me to arrive at whatever this port was. And it seemed like it was across the world. I didn't have any clarity, any details on that. It just seemed like we all have our own ship to sail. And it was like I had mine. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like I had that at that time in my life. I felt like I was sailing his ship, mm. Tim's ship. Mm-hmm. And so that I think there was some significance there for me to be like, we all have our own, we all have our own ships. Yes. And sometimes we can climb aboard someone else's to help them on, on their journey, but you still have your own, your own ship to sail. And I had some dear friends that were on that ship with me and, um, and we were going to some port. It felt like it was it felt like it was in England, um, which is interesting because that's where William Wilberforce is from. And he mm-hmm. grew up in a port city called Hull, um, or just out, outside of there. And, and so it felt like it was, it was going there. And then I looked off further out to sea. And do you remember in the movie Pirates of the Caribbean? And there was that big red ship that the the government army had mm-hmm. and it was like beautiful mm-hmm. i can't remember the name the name of it mm-hmm. no but i remember massive massive ship beautiful, compared to red. yeah the pirates uh-huh. yeah yeah and and uh tim was sailing that ship f- further oh. out to sea it looked like it was miles and miles away just on the edge of the horizon and as i was watching in my dream i'm sailing my little sh- my little ship and I see that massive red ship out there and I see a storm come 
and this huge storm envelops their ship and you can't see it anymore. And then in my dream, all of a sudden, I'm sailing through driftwood and that ship has absolutely gotten destroyed in this storm. And Tim is on a piece of driftwood and he floats up to in front of us and then over to the shore. And if you've, I mean, you've been to Hawaii, you know how some of the shores are like volcanic, mm -hmm. sharp rock? Mm -hmm. And that's the shore that he's landing on. Mm -hmm. And he gets off this uh, piece of driftwood and he looks over and all of his clothes in my dream are just tattered. Mm -hmm. And he looks beat up. And he looks over at me and he's got this look on his face like, dude, help a brother out. And my instinct in my dream is I started to turn the ship to go pick him up. Like, yeah, you can be a jerk and you, but I mean, there's a certain level where it's like, totally. you still got to help other people out. I'm just not a like pitchfork kind of yeah. judge and punish guy. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, I got to go pick him up. And as soon as I started to turn the ship over, I heard this voice like speak from the, the PA system in the heavens or something like that. And it says, you can go and pick them up, but if you do, you will be late for where you are sailing to at the port that you're going to. Mm. And so I had to make this choice within me, mm -hmm. and I decided that uh, I wasn't going to be late wow. for where I was going. And I just, we, in my dream, we just kind of looked at each other, and, and uh, I kind of gave him this look like, I'm sorry, but I can't. Yeah. And he kind of gave a look like, I think I'm going to die. Mm. I think I like, I'm almost drowning and I don't know how I'm going to survive. And I just kept sailing. And then as soon as I made the choice to get back on my course, stay on my course, I heard this voice again, this same place, like say, um, I don't remember the exact words. I'd have to look it up in the, my journal, but it it's it was something to the effect of like, you've made the right choice for your own course that you're sailing, and this is a part of his, mm -hmm. and this actually will bring him back to himself. Mm. Like this is all happening for him. Of course. And at the time, you know, I'm like, the hell does that That's mean? That's a lot for then, back yeah. then. And so he's climbing up on the rocks. I'm watching him as we're sailing by. And he's climbing up on the rocks and the rocks are so sharp. There's this volcanic basalt rock with the sea salt water mm -hmm. and his hands are bleeding as he's climbing up and he's just getting these little cuts and these little fissures everywhere in his tattered clothes. And I see that the heavens all of a sudden open up and there's this like stairwell that comes out of the heavens and his wife comes down and walks down these like little stair clouds and picks him up off of the, the, those like volcanic rocks and she holds him like a little child in, in her arms and she walks up and then the like, wow. And I'm like, what in the world is that? Well, I'm still dreaming. And all of a sudden my dream takes me over to, we're no longer in the ocean. I'm no longer sailing anywhere. It's like that metaphorical part has, has now ended. And now I'm over at the point of the mountain 
kind of where the original OUR office was. Okay. The uh, CrossFit gym that they have. Uh -huh. I'm like right over in that area. And I'm looking over the valley out into, he lives on the west side of the freeway. And I'm kind of looking in the direction of where his house is. And I'm, it's almost like uh, where everyone does all the paragliding mm -hmm, off the, mm -hmm. that hill. Yep. O old Widowmaker, <laughs> the locals will know. And it's almost like I'm up there and I'm, and I'm looking over and I see news articles start raining down onto his house and they're from the New York times and they're from the New York post and they're from the salt Lake tribune and they're from other like news publications that I don't see anywhere. And the news articles are basically saying something to the effect of like, uh, like the, the hero isn't what you thought it mm. thought he was the the man who rescues children from sexual exploitation is exploiting women. women. And I'm seeing this and oh I'm like, gosh. what in the world? And if, and then I can see inside of their house in my dream, I can see inside of their house and the phone keeps ringing and it's ringing for his wife and she won't answer the phone. And, and all of a sudden one phone call, like there's a ring <laughs> for some reason this call comes through and she decides to pick it up. It's like important enough or influential enough. I don't know why or what, but she picks it up and there's someone on the other line and he's explaining to her the relationship between his wife and Tim. And then another phone call comes in and she's just like, I don't know what to believe. We've got all these articles that are coming down. Mm -hmm. We've got these people are trying to convince me that he's this horrible guy. This is the sentiment and the feeling that's, that's in my dream, which you have to understand. This is like years ago, years ago. This, this is years ago. And even before these things were happening. Oh, he's like, not even there yet. He's not even near there, yeah. and especially in my world and my perception. Right. So none of this makes sense to me. In fact, it's quite confusing when I wake up. But she decides, his wife decides, that despite of everything, and I don't know what she's going to decide. Like, I haven't talked to them or, or anything. This is just the world according to Hugh and whatever need to make sense for me. But she decides that she's going to stay with him. And all of it cleans up. Like the news articles kind of float away. The storm of news headlines and everything floats away. And it seems like 10 years goes by. And I run into him. And he has a, uh, like a green tour guide vest on. And he's giving tours of his book, The American Covenant, over on the East Coast. And he's like, the tour guide. And that's what he actually does. Like this is the thing that he does and he's been doing for a while is he gives tours of the American covenant and he walks you through Gettysburg and he walks you oh, through wow. Virginia and he walks you through Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's house and John Adams house. And he's saying, these are the founding fathers and these are the pilgrims that set this nation and they created this covenant. And he gives, in fact, the news, the news, uh, clip that, 
Fox News came out with on Fox News 13, and he's standing there. I call it the tight pant rant. Right? He has little tight pants <laughs> yes. on, and he's like, shit, yes. shit, right? That that's whole so thing. random. That's where? That's one. That's in Boston, and he's giving, he's on the tour. Oh my gosh, I wondered where that the came covenant. from. Uh-huh. What? So he still does them today? He still does them today. Amongst all the other things that he's supposed to be doing uh-huh. yeah, that he's, he's busy he's, with. Yeah, and what? his genius is actually doing those tours. I've gone on the tours. It's worth going on, actually. Do you think that has anything to do with like the tours that he does to the tours and the tours like of, of finding and doing these drops to find these, these children? No. No, I think he does a pretty good job at keeping them separate, at least the time that I Well, it's there. just interesting that he goes and like, anyway this like this concept of touring yeah right? he's definitely a tour i personally i call him tour guide timmy that's that's because he was lighting these these people mm-hmm. these guides to these tours to find these children mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and so in in my dream what i see is that he's got this green almost like you know you'd give a, a tour at like like a Boy Mount Scout. Vernon. Yeah, like a little Boy Scout <laughs> like thing. Like Russell uh-huh. from Up. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and uh, he's finished with his tour. And we, in my dream, we like kind of cross paths. And now enough time has gone by. And I got my own thing going on in my dream. And, and, and so I, I like don't have, I just, I can see that there's a difference in him. It's kind of like this authentic version that originally started out is now back. Yeah. And he doesn't want to do anything big. Yeah. And he just like wants to do the thing that he's really good at. And the thing he's always been passionate about, which I think it's the book because the book's been That's this the thing. beginning. It's the beginning of, yes. of it. And it's where it ends in my dream. And he's really good. And the coolest part, I think the coolest part that I saw was he actually had a really good, healthy relationship with his wife. I'm not saying they don't have a good, you know, I'm not going to comment on that. But in my dream, I saw that they had a really like a genuine, good, authentic partnership where they had like been to hell together and they had like chosen in to be with each other. And whatever um, pain, his children were there Mm. at this part, they were like in this big van Mm. and they were going somewhere and wherever they were in this parking lot, I happened to be like walking by. And so I got to s- see the growth of his children and they had kids and there, there was like this whole lifestyle that was happening and, and, uh, they were all very happy. And he was like, he was just like, I, life is, it's like life is always, life now is what I always wanted it to be. Mm. And it like had just all been cleaned up and the ego had, the ego didn't die. He had made peace with it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, I don't know if it's even important to tell that, but now you look, it's really easy to look at it now. In fact, I had the couple friends that I had told this dream about years ago when the news articles were all coming down and anyone was coming out. I, these couple friends that I had told called me up and they were like, this is like your dream. And yeah, I was like, this is crazy. I mean, I don't even know if it's the idea of importance other than the, the intricate weaving of the story. 
your story, you sharing your story at this time, what we're seeing done in real time, what we feel about it, what the world feels about it, how we feel we've been manipulated. And to have you come on and share your story intermingled with obviously this dream. And and one thing I'll say really quickly is you can see that in his wife. She's there. Totally. She's right there by his, his side. I get a lot of, I don't know why people reach out to me, but they, they're like, do you think they're going to stay together? Mm. And I never explained my answer why, but I'm yeah. like, yep, yeah. I do. And they're like, how she should leave. She, you know, right. blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, nah, personally, I think they'll stay together. And I, I think they should. Yeah. From everything that has, I've had, everything that has happened in my life in this dream and everything else, of course, I think they should. Yeah. I think it, I think it works out. Yeah. Wow. Incredible and sad and upsetting. And, you know, as much as we understand that if people are truly on this path of healing and accountability and awareness, um, Forgiveness is a beautiful tool, mm-hmm. um, but but we're in a spot right now, and you you know sharing your voice and uncovering those painful pieces and also intricately perfect pieces to who you are now. First of all, thank you so much for sharing all this, Hugh. I think it's so important, especially now as we see women come forward these women coming forward that, um, for context were, um, his wives in some of these undercover, um, uh, undercover drops to rescue children. And maybe you can talk more about more on this, but whether we understand how it got to this point or not, it got to this point where Mm -hmm. Tim had, um, I'm going to use the words groomed and manipulated these women to believe that they had to, do these certain things in order to stay undercover. Oh, if you're undercover as my wife, this is what we do together. If you're undercover as my wife, you do this, we we do this together. And now that all this has come out, there's some um, legal lawsuits that have come out and these women have decided to stay anonymous. Um, And it's ruined their lives. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these situations, you know, they've gotten divorces. um, They've been completely manipulated and groomed and you have had contact uh, with these women um, maybe tell us a little bit about that and where we're at with that situation and where they're at and, um, where we're at. That's really at the story with a story. Yeah. I have spoken with, a, with a few of them and, um, they got my, some had, had heard about my, mm. my story mm-hmm. and I had received a phone number of of one of the women that was like she's struggling and she could probably use somebody to chat with who understands because just like what had happened with me um I didn't have anyone to call I didn't have anyone to tell my story to I didn't have anyone to tell my version of the story to of course I had close friends and family that were like you know I could, I could chat with but 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 they didn't really fully get it and they didn't fully understand it because you just, there's just certain things that you just, I don't know. They, I don't think anybody understood how much I'd put them up on a pedestal. I don't think people understood uh, how uh, insecurely attached, like 
Well, when also trauma bonded, I was there. when you're groomed, it can be, there's multiple ways. And these women, it, nobody can understand just how much trauma can go through something being, feeling like it's real. And then it's not. And then mm -hmm. being told, oh, wait, what have I done? Or feeling what have mm -hmm. I done? And to be able to have somebody to come to, to talk to, um, can and that, that's really be honest, life or death. Yeah, that's honestly what I went through. Exactly. I was like, what did I do? Totally. How did I screw up this bad? Like, And and now I look back on it and I'm like, that had nothing to do with me. Of course. But at the time it had everything to do with me. And I, uh, you know, and... And so I chatted with them and we had, we had some good one conversation from one woman. Then she found it to be very helpful because I'm also not in a place of like blaming or judging or yes. getting the pitchfork out. Right. And I tried to say like, Hey, this is what I learned. Not saying this is what you need to learn, but this is what I learned. And that seemed to be very helpful for one, which then turned into another phone call with, with one of the other women, which turned into another phone call with one of the other women. And so, um, I just said, Hey, look, this, this, I had a therapist that I went to, he's done some, like he was a therapist, um, for a little while. I don't know to the, ex the exact extent, but he had worked with like Elizabeth smart during some of her healing process. I also know that he worked with some other, um, some other people that were friends of mine and that he became highly recommended to me. And so I went and saw him as I was going through mine, um, pain and trying to figure things out. And I said, let me give you his phone number and you should start talking to a therapist. And so I introduced him and I think now four of the women are actually proactively seeking him. I think mm. the others have found other sources for them. I'm, I haven't chatted with them, you know, and I don't try to get too, in, too involved in mm -hmm. it by any means, but, but, um, yeah, there, four of them are working with the same therapist that I work through and I have followed up with them again. I don't, I don't ask them their stories. I don't ask them their details. I don't, I just don't, I don't get into that. It's like, mm -hmm. I just want you to feel seen. I mm -hmm. want you to feel heard. I want you to feel understood, but you mm -hmm. don't have to tell me the details. And also I don't need the details, Yeah. but what you do need to do is feel seen and heard. And I think this is, this is a therapist that can do that. So I, as I followed up and said, Hey, is the guy that I introduced you to is, is like, is that helping every single one of them just starts like they just start crying and mm. on the phone and they're like, it has been so helpful to work with somebody who had some understanding, mm. you know, from, from my story. And also he's a brilliant therapist. He doesn't, you know, you got to go through your stages of like being validated and feeling seen and heard, but then helping you start to move closer and closer through the grieving process, the accountability process. And he was very, very integral in that for me. And they've begun that uh, process. And what they've said is that it's been extremely helpful. That to me is where I feel so much more motivated than the legal side. I'm like, let's go work on the healing side. If you all need to go do your legal approach, leave me out of that. Cause, cause I don't think healing comes from, from that. Yeah. I think we want healing to come 
come from justice. It. We want justice. We want we want healing to come from justice when really the justice is the justice within our own accountability. It it totally has to come from that. And it's just like you said earlier, is like we have these deep feelings of resentment that we're trying to well, you talked about forgiveness and the opposite of forgiveness. And this is one of the great lessons that I learned from my entire experience is that the opposite of forgiveness is resentment. Mm. So what I started asking myself is, do I, do I feel resentment? Because I was telling everyone, oh, I have forgiven. But then when I was asked the question, do you feel resentment? I was like, yep, I do. Yeah. And you can't have both of them at the, right. at the same time. And the word resent you know, R-E means again, and sent, S-E-N-T, is the Latin word for to feel. Mm. And meant is the Latin word for mind. Mm. So how I'm telling the story about what happened to me in my prefrontal cortex in my mind causes me to re-feel all the abandonment Everything. and the pain and the extreme unfairness that I have. And so then all my emotions come up. And my anger comes to try to protect my boundaries and my rage try, comes out and I want fairness and I want justice. Well, and then ultimately it connects you to that cord. That cord of energy is continued to stay with that situation, with that experience and that person, which then what leads you to not being sovereign. Mm -hmm. And it just gives that person more power. Totally. Along the way. Totally. And, and so it was like, I had to I had to go look at all of those emotions that were try, I th I believe all of our emotions are trying to lead us to our sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And I was misinterpreting my anger, I was misinterpreting mm -hmm. my sadness as a as a justification to punish what felt so extremely unfair. Mm. And I think that's what happens. I think that's why we go get a pitchfork is because I have all these emotions and it's like, I will get justice. Yeah. And I re I rethink about what happened to me and I get angry again. And, and then it's like, well, I'm going to go find my own way to use my voice to get my pitchfork and bring justice to the table. And that I think is a misinterpretation of emotions and what emotions are actually for. I think it's very common. But for me, what I realized in my sadness is that the message of sadness is that the the relationship I care about so deeply is leaving. Hmm. And, and so when I started realizing that that relationship I cared so deeply about was leaving, then it made sense why I was sad mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. anger. It's something more layered. Yeah. And even underneath that, it's, it's the layer of who's leaving. Who is it? Is it a mother wound? Is it a father wound? Yeah, is it you right. leaving your true self? Yeah. It's always layered. Yeah. And it was, then it was like, oh, well, this relationship between Tim and I feels like it's leaving. And then there was, there was grief because I believe the message of grief is the relationship has left and now I have to figure out how to move on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's this whole process of like, oh, crap, how do I move on? Mm -hmm. And you move on by going within, just like you said earlier. That's mm -hmm. how I moved on mm -hmm. is it was like, well, I better go figure out where all the places I gave myself away and how to like call those parts back in and make peace with those parts because I needed those relationships to be enough. Yeah. And and so it's like, well, 
what feels like it's not enough. Yeah. And let me go look at that and see if I can find my enoughness in, in yeah. that. Yeah. And that's what for me took years. Yeah. I don't think it necessarily has to take years. I, th I think if, uh, I would have found the community that we have mm -hmm. today, mm -hmm. it, it goes much, much quicker. Mm -hmm. But you know, years ago I didn't, I wasn't exposed to any of any of this. And so it just was a long like trial and error and yeah. sleep, sleep it off and try to make sense of it. And yeah, go through the whole cycle over and over again to try to understand why, why me, but really, you know, the gift of it all. And I, it goes, it, the, you know, this comes back to the women and why you have decided to share your story. It doesn't even have to do with him, Tim and everything exploding and everything coming to fruition and, and, and all these things being exposed. It's actually ultimately to help support these women. Help support the women. And this is, I, I wish, oh gosh. I think this is actually a beautiful opportunity for the community to return to wholeness and we can we can practice going to that place beyond right and wrong and meeting in the field and helping Tim return to his wholeness. Yeah. Cuz the truth is is like I mean the last that I knew of him he was like most of us. He didn't know his wholeness and yeah. he needs these other things outside of him to make him good enough and make him whole enough. And I don't think that's true. I, I don't think, I don't think, uh, OUR makes him great. I don't think rescuing kids makes him great. Um, in fact, if anything, I think it's kind of all brought up his shadows. Um, and I think that's beautiful. So it's like, okay, well let's go integrate the shadow and let's go find the parts that you judge of yourself I think it's uh, very challenging because he has to do that now in a very public setting. Mm -hmm. Some people have to do that in a public setting. And also what a gift, like, thank you. We can give him gratitude because with him doing it publicly, we are all, if we choose to heal, because in some way or another, all of us that have been, that have a testimony of him mm -hmm. or that have donated dollars mm -hmm. or have believed in this thing outside of ourselves, we gave a part of that away. Yeah, I don't think all is lost. I think that's a very, uh, I think that's like a very disparaging yeah. belief. And the, the idea of saving children is still so alive. Mm -hmm. It's still so, and in fact, look at what we've been able to create. If you look at the donation dollars, you look at how many people know of OUR, mm -hmm. you look at how, you look at the the molecule and the frequency of what it is that we're doing here. As a community, without anybody on a pedestal, without anybody being the face necessarily, like we can come back to that and say, okay, well, let's do better mm -hmm. rather than being like, well, all hope is lost. Look, now we see uh, an abuser is running an abuse, uh, an anti-abusing situation. Yeah. That doesn't help. That yeah. doesn't help anything. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually very, very opposed to I know pitchforks. Yeah, to putting any fuel on that, I I I completely disregard yep. and and disassociate from any of that narrative. Because what does it do? I, I mean, Nothing. all of it, everything that we've been learning. In fact, this goes along actually with a lot of what's going on in the climate, and I find it so interesting that so much is being brought to light, and in the the lightness, people 
I understand. I have sympathy and empathy for it. This, uh, that it's, it's, it's disheartening. It can be disheartening. People are like, no way. Look at this corruption. Mm -hmm. There's no way to turn from this. Instead of saying, look, look what's being seen. Look at what the shadow that we've revealed. Mm -hmm. What a gift Mm -hmm. so that we can know better. We can see that is wholeness. Like you said, we have to see the light in the dark. Yeah. And what a gift that we've been able to use this as an example. Yeah. I mean, a bunch of darkness is the light has like yeah. brought a bunch of shadows out. Yeah. And uh, again, I think it's a hard thing for particularly for the women because they're for whatever reasons they've chosen. I, I don't communicate with them enough to, you know, to answer this question. But for whatever reason, at this time, they have decided to stay anonymous I completely understand that. I I wanted to stay anonymous for a long time and I didn't I didn't do any, you know, feel like I had deserved any of that pain that I that I was going through. Again today I'm extremely grateful for it and I learned from it. Uh I see my role in it. But um there I think the thing that I am most focused on is how how do you take this rupture within mm-hmm. our community? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you take this rupture within the work of rescuing children? Mm-hmm. Because now it's like, well, who do I trust? Mm-hmm. Now who's going to go rescue the kids mm-hmm. now? Who, and it's like, what if we take this rupture and we go through the repair process? And there, there is a repair process to, that can happen. And it's actually quite simple and easy uh, to do. But it's like we that has to be brought to the to the surface and i think this is our opportunity to actually repair as a community to repair as um a place that's safe for our kids i think that's the thing where this all started yeah. is like why why am i donating my time and my money and my resources well essentially it's to protect my children yeah because because if we can be rescuing all of the kids and we can make the world a better place and it's the healing, it's the returning of, it's the returning to the wholeness. Well, and it's the argument that it's not that it's the only thing we can do. However, it's where we can start and that's inside the home. Mm-hmm. And even if we've donated thousands and thousands of dollars individually to helping people, to helping children to come home and that feels lost and you feel hopeless, it comes back to what we can do here Mm -hmm. inside our homes with our children, providing safe experiences for them, um, teaching them wholeness now rather than raising children that have to heal ruptures. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. outside of themselves yes and and a lot of people aren't going to like that answer <laughs> no because they want it bigger they want it godlike. Mm-hmm. they want to strap on their armor and run into the darkness when really like that is just a reflection of what's happening here mm-hmm. and it starts within the home it starts within the home and and if we can allow ourselves to detach learn the lessons and detach from the energy of what is causing the pain in the first place. Imagine what we can do and bring the energy where we can bring that energy. And this is where I'm so grateful that you came to me, Hugh, because a couple weeks ago you said, 
have this idea. I would love to create um, a, why can't I think of the word? Uh, we're, 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 we're funding uh-huh. like, a fund. like a uh-huh. fundraiser. Uh-huh. Thank you. Like a little Venmo account, a little Venmo fundraiser. <laughs> he came to me and said, I'd love to somehow create a fundraiser for these women to help pay for their therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's when I actually approached him and I said, absolutely. I'd love to do that. I usually do a, a fundraiser at least once a year for around my birthday, which is in January. And this will be probably coming out a few weeks before then this episode. But then I thought, why don't we go beyond that and hopefully help not only these women, but also victims in all, in all aspects and all over the world, whoever gets to hear this, whoever's willing to listen to this for over three hours to get the codes of accountability through Mm -hmm. your story with Tim. Mm Because there's no other story like that out here right now. Everybody else is is out for blood. Mm-hmm. And we can have empathy for that because of the newness. But for one reason, I believe it's many reasons you were paving this path earlier. So eventually, you could come here and teach all of us to come back to wholeness through your story. And that takes bravery and courage and love. And so with that gift, first of all, so much gratitude. And also we've opened up, I'm opening up my Venmo account for donations and I will have them open for two weeks because I think I might break this episode up in two episodes. I, I haven't decided yet but I'll have them open for two weeks and you can um, just contact my Venmo and I will have it here in the show notes along with, I really want to write down all of the incredible books you offered and all the, all those different amazing insights. But my Venmo is Sadie dash Sabin. Um, and all of the money it's at zero now and I'll make sure to have all that and all the money will be donated to the therapist who is giving this therapy to how many is he working with now? Right now he's working with four of the women. And, um, here, here's actually what's really, really incredible is that, uh, some of the women didn't have the funds to get the therapy. And he said, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You just need therapy. I don't know why he did that. Mm -hmm. Just he's semi retired right now. Mm -hmm. He's only takes clients on if you know him and you kind of have to do this whole intake form. And, and so he and I still chat just randomly, like once a year, we'll, we'll catch up with each other's lives. Mm. And we were having how it all like came together is we were having one of those updated chats. And I was like, dude, you should totally, I'm going to connect you with them. And will you open up your books and, and take whoever can come? And he said, I'll do that. And then he's like, I'm looking for service in my own life. And so tell them not to worry about the money. Tell them I'm just going to do that. And I will give them weekly sessions for six months. Wow. And it's 150 bucks a session. And um, four of four of the women have said, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. You know, and it just kind of came one mm-hmm. at a time. And they're all in their own their own process. All I know is that it's going well the women that I've chatted with have some of them I've never even met in person. Yeah. 
and they're just like, thank you so much. He's, he's incredible. So, um, do we have a number of how many women have come forward? Uh, I've heard a couple of different numbers, uh, that have come forward as right now, as it stands, I think it's six. Okay. Is, is what have come forward there. There were more, but there were some, as I heard it, there were some agreements that were made that one reason or another, they decided to settle outside of it. Okay. And I don't know the details on that, but, um, I think the, uh, I think the therapist is worth, I mean, if we have a little bit of extra money and just as a community, we can, you know, just put some money towards it. He's not asking for the money. He's not needing the money. This was my idea to say to him, I want you to be fairly compensated because six months is, is a a lot, is a lot. And that's, that's a long time. And, um, you know, and the women just aren't in a, I mean, they've got their finances all wrapped up in the legal fees and and everything that's going there. And I was just like, let's prioritize the healing. And, you know, attorneys, um, can be thousands an hour. Mm -hmm. My attorneys for my particular lawsuit, one of them was like, we're like 500 an hour. And just for, you know, for those who, um, are curious. There are some, I don't even know if we need to get into the details, but the lawsuits are actually public. Like you can go online and read what these women are fighting over or fighting against, which is essentially being manipulated into believing that certain acts had to happen, um, in order to be undercover to, and they played the wife, the wives of Tim, um, in some of these different what would you call, um, they refer to him as a couple's ruse. Yeah. Which I had actually never, my whole time, I had never heard of that. And I feel like there's a, there's even a different Tim. Yeah. I came I didn't after even my know, time. I didn't even know that was going on because mm-hmm. all of the videos that I was a part of now, I stopped donating to OUR a couple of years ago just because I, I had a feeling. Mm-hmm. I just, just a feeling a few of my other influencer or entrepreneur friends had the same. Um, and I just remember it being more like Navy SEAL vibes, like all going in bros, like going in. I didn't know that this was a couple of ruse things. So as it come out, as, it, as it's come out, these women and what they were manipulated to believe needed to be done. Okay. So these couples ruse just started, I don't even know, maybe a couple years ago. And these women have been manipulated and groomed into believing that these would help rescue children. Yeah. In the original days, what was, what was actually going on is you would take a, a guy who would pretend to be, or propose to be a billionaire, a very wealthy guy. And so he had a role to play. And then Tim would come in as this billionaire's assistant. Mm. And then the billionaire would be saying, I want to go get, I want to go get a big party. I want to. And so then Tim had to work with, I got to get young kids. I got to get these teenagers to my, my boss, this big party that's going on. And that was kind of the play Mm. that gave them an excuse to see if they could find younger kids that Mm. were under, you know, underage. And to come and get 
get purchased for the night. Yeah. And somewhere along the lines, and what I had, what I seemed to be able to kind of gather from what's happening is this started really picking up and becoming women and couples ruse in like 2019. Mm. And, and, and so... I heard it got really bad in 2020 and you know then the following years after that. And like you said, you can read all of this and people can make their own determination of what what they believe about it. Uh, I'm with Glenn Beck on this uh who came out who's a very dear friend of Tim. I've been with them together on multiple occasions and uh Glenn was very uh heartbroken and he um read through all the allegations read through the papers and he says i hope it's not true but i side i'm siding with the women on on this and i think when people read through that you see some really common patterns that uh you know people need to just go read through and make their own yeah their own decisions on that yeah you know the women um and I actually haven't even read through all of it, just very little. But as far as understanding how to work with trauma and be a guide and a coach in that, these women, first of all, have no reason to make and fabricate, one. And two, even s- things as simple as the alcohol portion mm-hmm. and being told that we you have to drink alcohol. Now, for a lot of these women, um, they are in a religion that... that's against that's against the word of wisdom in the mormon church and so even something like that is is so morally wrong to them and that's very little Mm -hmm. compared to the many other things that they were told they needed to do and i just can't help but think how mentally um upsetting and traumatizing that can be to be told to do something in you know under the idea that you're saving children Mm mm-hmm I mean, imagine what you would do in that yeah, situation. Yeah, it it is traumatizing because um, Dr. Peter Levine has a fantastic definition of, of what trauma is. He says, and, and Gabor Mate shares a very similar definition. Mm-hmm. And when you combine them together, it is trauma is not the experience that you went through. It's what you made that experience mean mm-hmm. about you. Mm-hmm imagine especially coming from that Mm -hmm. and they're losing their marriages Mm -hmm. and so what are the stories that they're telling about themselves how did i get in this situation yes and and i went through that yeah and that trauma is not the experience they went through it is what they made the experience mean about themselves yeah and as a uh a sexual abuse survivor myself that goes so deep in the sexual realm of femininity and what did I do to ask for this and how could I have asked for that as a woman and putting it all on myself or themselves or the chastity around it, the moral, the morality around it. Um, they are in for some very deep healing mm-hmm. and, and um, I hope that we can support them in that. Mm-hmm. And if anything, your your voice in all this i know will help those women not only get the healing but also see i mean let's we we haven't really talked about where you are now 
and the magical human you are now. And the gratitude that I have every time we interact, every time we talk, uh, you just being in my life as a brother and, and a family member now really um, for who you are and how you've chosen to move through this traumatic event for yourself and the, the hundreds and hundreds of people you help through your rewilding retreats through Mustang Medicine. Mm-hmm. And for them to be able to see that there's a, a space for them on the other side and not just them, anyone in a space of victimhood, anyone in a space of trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you have that story that you're telling about yourself, I, you, you know, I was abused, therefore I'm abusable. And since I was abused, I must be worth abusing these are these are what they call core wounded beliefs we mm-hmm. all have them mm-hmm. i went f- four decades without even knowing i had one mm-hmm. and uh i you know it turns out i have quite a few mm-hmm. and uh, being able to rewrite that story of what i've made certain experiences mean about m- me those are the things that pulled me away from my they, they put me into parts and so now when I'm looking at those stories, it's like, oh, this is where I, where I believed that I was worth betraying, or this is where I believed that I wasn't good enough, or that I wasn't smart enough, or that I'm not choosable, right? And it doesn't matter where that experience came from. It matters that I adopted that story, and that became how I identified it. And so now these patterns had to show up in my life to show, to prove to me, this is what you believe about you. Yeah. And so I needed those people like Tim to show me what I believed about me. I, I actually personally in the field don't feel like uh, it had anything much to do with him other than he had a soul contract with me to show me mm. what I believed about mm. me. And it was a pretty wounded, a wounded thing. And now I've made peace with that part. And what's really miraculous and amazing is that I have an extremely safe community that we all get to be human, but we are built on these three core pillars of authenticity, vulnerability, Mm. and accountability. And we have a core promise that runs through the foundation of all of that, which is to never weaponize anyone's vulnerabilities. Powerful. And if you feel safe to do that, you restore wholeness. You can look at anything and then you can real, you can bring yourself back, back to your realization of your wholeness. And that's healing. And in that aspect and perspective, everything has a place. Everything has a purpose. Yeah. That's how, that's how, that is how benevolent this universe is. The, the universe felt like the, the world, the earth experience felt like such a malevolent experience mm. for me for so long mm. because what it felt like is that it was so easy to get wounded, mm-hmm. so easy to get traumatized, mm-hmm. so easy to get betrayed. And it felt so near impossible to find any healing and mm-hmm. any peace in it. And uh, that would make this world a really, really malevolent place to live. Yeah, I think we live in a more beneficial uh, world than we can even imagine. I think the benevolence of this universe and the way that it's all been created and intelligently designed is that it is so simple to find healing 
even though it is very easy to get traumatized, to keep it all in harmony, it also has to be really simple to find healing. Yeah, yeah. And the goal for that is the awareness, mm-hmm. is the awareness in a, in a dual reality, yes. the awareness of that. And then we can have this, exi- this excited experience on this earth of not only is everything working for us, but it's t- taking us for closer and closer to our wholeness, mm-hmm. to the gods within us, with no one above or below us, everything working in perfect tandem. And that's the message that Jesus was giving. You know, in the book of Luke, they were asking, so where is the kingdom of God? And I started thinking about this question, and it's, it's, for me, the way that my brain puts it together is, where does, the first question is, where does God live? Mm. And for me, the answer is, well, he lives, he, she, whatever, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. God lives in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God uh, is called that because that's where God lives. So then the question is, well, where is the kingdom of God located? And that's a question that Jesus answered. And he said, the kingdom of God is located within you. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, if God lives in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is in me, I then I am God. <laughs> yes. And this is what got him killed. This mm. was the blasphemous message that he had mm. because when he was uh, working with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like he was giving his message and they came and they would interrupt him all the time. And they said, so are you telling people that they're complete and they're whole and they're lacking mm. no parts? And he says, know ye not that you're gods. Mm. And what he's doing there is he's actually quoting Psalms 82, six and mm. Psalms 82, six says, ye are gods, even children of the most high gods. Mm. And he was quoting their scriptures, their text back to them saying, I am telling people that they are gods and that they're complete in their whole and they're having a human experience. And your texts are telling them the same thing. And it's you that's not understanding your own scriptures. Yeah. And then they were like, okay, kill him. <laughs> It's still a true message, though, today. To, so true today, and so true is this circle that we're going on, this spiral of, oh, that's the truth. Oh, let's hide it. Let's kill it. Mm-hmm. Let's let go of it. Let's get be- like let's get bitter in it. Let's betray it. Let's. But because of voices like yours, and because of the awareness of where we've come from it's not dying anymore. Mm -mm. It's waking up. It's there's, there's a community out there that doesn't demonize or villainize vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Instead, we, we bring it. And it's not just about the next story about the next guy who manipulated this. You know, it's about voicing your wholeness Mm -hmm. from, from having to go through all of that to come to this path, to this place. Um, and I'm so grateful and honored that you chose to speak it here. Well, thanks for giving me a a safe place to be able to speak it. I love you so much. (laughs) You can find Hugh, uh, at Mustang Medicine on Instagram. I'll put all of his links down and uh, I'm so honored. And if you haven't met him before, you're in for a treat because, um, his magic and medicine are powerful. Love you so much. Love you too. Thank you. Thank you.